Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are all joining us. This is episode 112 uh, of our podcast. We are recording on Saturday, February 6th, 2021, at about 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Uh, recording on Saturday today because there's something important going on on Sunday. Uh, I don't know, a little uh, a little Super Bowl or something like that. Or, or, no, I don't think we're allowed to say that. Have you noticed that? It's like trademarked. We can't say Super Bowl. The big game. In the big game. Anyways, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, Zach Saltz, Todd Plucknett. How's it going, guys? What are you talking about, Terry? The Super Bowl was three days ago. Today's Wednesday, and we're all celebrating Patrick <laughs> Mahomes' triumphant return with a second trophy. Wasn't he great? Yeah, of course. Yes, yes. He, he, was, he was outstanding until Brady came back and beat him, because that's what he does to everybody. I, you were watching a different game than I was. <laughs> All right, well, let's see here. I had some banter. I completely forgot what it was. Anyways, let's just get into it. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking some fabulous two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's, which I have to get in Missouri because they don't sell alcohol in the Kansas Trader Joe's. That's TMI. Hey, I thought we were going to do a... Re- <laughs> are we going to do a reaction segment to the Golden Globe nominations? Or am I jumping the gun oh, here? Yes. Maybe that was your banter. Yeah. That was it. That was it. Yeah, let's finish the drinking first. Okay, good, good idea. Then, finish, uh, always finish the, import- the drinking first. That's the important part. Always finish the drinking first. Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, so I was eating sushi earlier, so obviously there was a sake tasting. So I'm having a sake teeny, and it's in a tall glass because I think I need to go like five to one on that. And I have a, a habanero olive also, so that's going to be fun. It's exotic. It's going to be good. All right. Well, uh, I have. Um, I went to Ridgewalker, uh, as, as I as I do when we're recording, and so uh, in honor of what we're going to be deep diving today, I I got I had to find something that would go along with Twister. So uh, this is their Skyloss Pale Ale. Mm. I thought that was appropriate. There were a few that I thought would work. Like there's one they have that's called Tree Wise. I was like that that would make sense because you know. Trees are flying, but Skyloss I felt was the best one. No, no cow flavored um, gimmick beer. No. Oh, no. too bad. They do have some some uh, some bovine puns in there See, somewhere, but I didn't go. Fly, for flying cow sounds like it would be the name of a gimmick beverage, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does. The the one they have that I've had it it's um it was a chocolate milk stout and it, it was called cacao cow. That's, yeah, that's that's some great dad humor right there. I guess, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, that's awesome. It, Maybe it is, it is. Kaylee Cow Cow drinks it. Isn't that her name? <laughs> Quoco, Quoco, but I mean, <laughs> kind of on the right track. Uh, all right, well, we are also uh, recording our uh, video of this again. We uh, liked it so much last week, we thought we'd give it another try. Um, so if you're watching us on YouTube, thanks for watching. Um, I feel like we're on around the horn right now with the way I have it set up. I, I'm just kind of playing with the controls. Adam was in control last time, and uh, he's not here, so maybe we could do that. 
We could, oh, we could go whoa. like this, and then you whoa. can see a little. You can see, you can see a little twister in the background too there, um, or or I could just like remove all of you, and then it doesn't matter anymore. But I I, I don't know. What do you guys? I think we might maybe we go like this. It also looks like uh, the cover of Take Shelter. Could be either one. <laughs> all right. Well, let's not waste any more time. Uh, Globe and SAG nominations came out this week. And um, I, I know Todd and uh, I, I texted you a lot right when they came out and, and gave some initial reactions. But uh, you're, you're our uh, Oscar guru here. Give us your initial reactions of, uh, of what those nominations meant. Well... I don't know what to make of the Globes because they're so weird. They, they had a movie that, like, 90% of critics never even had heard of that was nominated for multiple awards. So I'm not sure you could take much from that other than the fact that Jared Leto now is, like, squarely in the race for a supporting actor, even though he wasn't shortlisted by BAFTA, so he won't be nominated there. That might be a change of how things look. But the SAG definitely uh, did not have a reflective cast uh, lineup that could be... Uh, translated a picture which leaves everything pretty much wide open again sort of like 2017 was that way too when Sh the shape of water wasn't even nominated there so i i mean the, the sags are interesting i mean your guys's favorite movie hillbilly elegy got multiple nominations so you got to be happy about that i think i heard that chadwick boseman set a record as being the first four-time sag nominee in one year because he got yeah. actor, supporting actor, and then ensemble for both uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and The Five Bloods. Yeah, I even though that was The Five Bloods' sole nomination. Well, it got no, it got nominated for cast, which makes even less sense because they're right. That's what I mean. It got nominated for cast. Oh yeah, yeah. So cast and Chadwick. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know where to put that. I, I mean, unless that gets a PGA nomination, I don't think that's a Best Picture nominee. Right. Right. Um, Zach, what what were your thoughts? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I texted Todd, I think, and you, if I remember correctly, I think Mank is now a front runner for Best Picture. I think there is going to be some backlash. It almost got Nomad shut Man. out of SAG, though. No, it, no one, well, It only, got, it only okay. had Gary Oldman nominated. Not even Amanda Seyfried, who was supposed Amanda to win I, that thing. Well, I mean, look, you know, I, I my larger point is that I think there's going to... We have not seen Nomadland. I mean, obviously the three of us know that Nomadland is going to be great. But these are the same Oscar voters that only two years ago voted for Green Book. And last year, maybe they took a break and didn't watch their screeners for Parasite or something. But these voters are still going to be there. And they're going to like stupid shit like Mank. So I feel like Mank, Chicago 7, they performed very well at the nominations. And that, I think, sets them up, sets them up pretty nicely for some Oscar nominations. Yeah, I think I saw that... Um that only one film got picture director screenplay at the Globes as well as cast from the SAGs, and that was Trial of Chicago 7. Well, I think it was the only one nominated for picture and cast, right? That could be. Because Minari was nominated for Best Foreign Film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, and Defy Bloods did very poorly at the at SAG. Or at, yeah, at the Golden I, Globes. Is, is, uh, is Delroy Lindo out of the, out of the race? He is British, so, I mean, he's going to get a BAFTA nomination, you would think, right? So, I mean, that that could be his resurgence, but, I mean... It... Wait, Delroy Lindo is British? I didn't know that. I don't think I knew that either. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that could be his resurgence, but I, it, it isn't looking good for him. If he didn't get into the SAG, that, that was supposed to be one of the spots that was for sure... But, I mean, it went to Stephen Yoon, which is kind of cool, but... 
don't really know. I mean, he's he's been in the he's been in the game a long time and never gotten any recognition really. I was so, also sad to see Paul Racy miss out on both, and that might seal the deal for him missing out at uh, at the Oscars. Well, yeah, the Critics' Choice seems like a solid spot for him to get recognized, and that com- those nominations come out Monday. If he's nominated there and Sound of Metal gets a Best Picture nomination there, then I think that he could win that, and that would actually help him a lot. But I, it, it is looking slim. But he could be one of those guys that's like ends up being the like Ethan Hawke or whatever, where he wins every critic award and, and just misses out on the Oscar. Yeah. yeah. So, Todd, what is music? I don't know. It's some movie directed by Sia, who's some Australian singer, I think. Yes. And uh, it, yeah, she's the one that covers her face, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a movie about an autistic girl, but they cast somebody who wasn't autistic, so it's super controversial, and the Globes decided that was going to get eyeballs on the thing. I don't know. I mean, Kate Winslet isn't even really a celebrity. Like, it's weird that they would pick that as Kate one Hudson. of their random. Not Winslet. Hudson. Hudson. Kate Hudson. Yes, Kate Hudson. It, yeah. I don't know. The the Hollywood Foreign Press is. Uh, batshit crazy. Is is Maria Bakalova a lock now? I there could be category confusion. I guess. I mean, she was nominated for best actress at the Globes. Yeah, but I think that's because the Globes just said you are a lead, and then they're campa- campaigning her and supporting it everywhere else, and she's winning supporting everywhere else. I don't know. I think that'll be interesting too. Well, and it, what's funny is, uh, it, it seems like Glenn Close is making her, uh, her push again for an Oscar, and yet again, she has Olivia Coleman in her way. Yep. Round two. <laughs> it's Annette Benning versus Hilary Swank again. Todd, what were some of your thoughts about the TV nominations? Because those are always ridiculously entertaining, too. Uh, well, I don't know. They were kind of all over the place, right? Yeah, I mean, there was some backlash this year for sure for all the nominations for Emily in Paris and <laughs> well, Zendaya getting snubbed again. Yeah, I mean, well, she won the Emmy, but I mean, the Globes are always weird with that. They they like new shows, but I don't know. They don't necessarily hop on the most popular shows. Like, I remember when, like, The Walking Dead got nominated for Best Picture for their first season. It was just like, what? And then it never even came close to anything again. I... I don't know. I mean, the Globes are hard to take seriously there. The The SAGs were weird, though, because they nominated, like, all Ozark and uh, and The Crown in one category. Yeah, wasn't it actress drama was three Crown actresses and then two Ozark? Yeah, which, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen it look like that, other than when, like, Modern Family would have, like, four, and then there'd be one from another show. Yeah, that, w- that was crazy. So, so is any... Does anyone have any bold predictions right now? Because I have one I want to say. Go ahead and say yours. Okay, I think Sasha Baron Cohen's going to win lead actor and supporting actor. I don't know how bold that is, but I feel like... At the Globes? That, yeah, at the Globes. I, I mean, that I think that's that's quite possible. That would make sense. I, that's only happened ever once, I think. It was Kate Winslet in 2008 won both, and... I remember she was like, this should never happen. You should never win both. I, I don't know if they're ever going to do that. I don't think Sacha Baron Cohen's winning supporting actor. That that would be the category I, I think he, I would have more faith in him winning of the two. He's already won I in mean, Best Actor Comedy for that role. Like, he's gonna he could easily win that again. 
Well, then who else is going to win in that category? I, I think it's a fairly weak lineup. Yeah, who wins supporting supporting actor? What are the other nominees? Daniel Kaluuya. It, it's Bill Murray on the rocks, Daniel Kaluuya, Julius and Black Messiah, Jared Leto, The Little Things, somehow, uh, Leslie Adam Jr., One Night Miami, and then Sacha Baron Cohen. All inferior to Paul Racy. That's a slap in the face. Yeah. Well, I, mean, we I haven't guess, seen Juice and the Black Messiah. We yet. haven't seen Juice and the Black Messiah. That's that's. Leslie Adams Jr. could easily win that. And yeah, I mean, I, I think Juice and the Black Messiah is a wild card because nobody's really seen it. But I don't I know. I think that races down to Sasha Baron Cohen and Daniel Kaluuya. Well, the people who have seen Juice and the Black time, Messiah. Terry, uh, the, I mean, Jared Leto is very similar to Aaron Taylor Johnson getting nominated for. Um, uh, Nocturnal Animals, which he won. Remember, he yeah, won in that I, category. I and 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 Jared Leto is eerily like very like he's really creepy. He's he's really creepy in that, and really method, and that could be easily something that they could go with. I think I'm talking more the Oscars. I think I think it's down to Kalia and Cohen. I still think Davis Strathairn has a chance. He he could get he could be the weird one that gets nominated right at the end and still win it. There's always one. There's always one. The like, Tommy Lee Jones music. Kate Hudson for music. She isn't even on the Gold Derby list for possibilities. Like, that's what's crazy. <laughs> I, I looked today. Like, she isn't even 100 to 1. She's not even on the list. And she was a Golden Globe nominee. Like, it's crazy. We're going to be talking about this for a while. So, uh, it was cool to have that back-to-back days. Um, I I, uh, I watched the both uh, reveals, nomination reveals, and... The SAG reveal exclusively on Instagram Live was a total mess. Um, the first 10 minutes was watching David Diggs try and find Lily Collins' request to join the feed um, before they could actually start. It was ridiculous. It wasn't... It. They should never do that again. It was... Yeah. That is just... Yeah. I mean, it was a bad idea to begin with. Yeah. I watched it during a staff meeting when I was supposed to be on Zoom. <laughs> But no one noticed because I turn off my camera. Uh, that's awesome. That's the that's the best part of this. You know, you can just turn on your camera, watch the Oscar nominations, watch the Golden Globe nominations. No one knows. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. Well, uh, let's move on from talking about awards and talk about some of the stuff we've watched. And uh, that that banter took a lot longer than our normal banter. So let's kind of go quick through uh, through what we've watched this week. Uh, Zach, we're gonna go to you first. Okay, I didn't really watch any new movies this week. I did watch on Hulu, though, an episode of the New York Times Presents, which is the documentary series, and they just came out with an episode called Framing Britney Spears. Um, it's a really interesting look at um, this online movement called um, Hashtag Free Britney, it, which refers to the fact that apparently Britney Spears is under the uh, conservatorship of her father, which means that he basically oversees all of her estate and um, kind of financial um, entities. And this is the result of Britney Spears having gone into, um, I think, a psychiatric hospital in 2008 when she kind of was going through her mental meltdown phase when she shaved her head. And um, as a result, I mean, she's made a comeback. Like she's she's been on, uh, she's been a celebrity judge on some shows and she has a big show in Vegas. But um, I think fans have been reading very much into her Instagram posts as like cryptic messages that are asking uh, people to liberate 
portrayed her um, with the, you know, sort of interpretation that she's under the under duress of her father, um, who she has a complex relationship with, which is what the documentary shows. This is very much like Nick Broomfield sort of territory. Like, I, I you know, I kind of like celebrity gossip documentaries. It's one of my soft spots. Um, Wesley Morris is on this, by the way. He's awesome. Um, and uh, it. Yeah, you know, it show it, half of it's like Britney as a bio. The other half is this kind of weird fan movement that's based all around social media. There's not a whole lot of difference, I feel like, between the paparazzi in 2002 and the uh, free Britney fans on Instagram today. To some respect, just leave the woman alone. Actually, it's what Michael Moore says randomly in the movie, which reminds me, she my my own interpretations of Britney Spears come from her appearance in Bowling for Columbine when she defends George Bush. Anyway, long story short, worth checking out pretty cool documentary it's like an hour and 10 minutes and uh that that they do good stuff on that show it's on hulu right now framing britney spears all right all right okay uh i'll go next uh so we didn't get to do this last week so i'm going to share a couple um really quick kind of go through a couple of the uh anniversary watches that i had my oscar watches um the last couple weeks so my first one is going back. Uh, the, the, here's your here's your game, guys. Going back 30 years to 1991. Uh, this was nominated for two Oscars. Both were major categories. Not picture. Well, I, I guess Rambling Rose a few weeks ago, which I thought was a good guess. Is that no, is that I still it? Think that's no, okay. Wrong, no. I don't think it was nominated. I think it was nominated for like a costumes or something uh, oh uh, rambling rose no it got two actress and supporting actress um no acting categories uh, it was director and screenplay it was not made for director and screenplay boys in the hood boys oh. in the hood that was a first time watch this might be like the biggest wow. overlook for me um in uh in my entire list for this year Ooh, hold on hold on hold on hey now it's just me yeah so boys in the hood uh, yeah, it was my first time watch. Uh, I don't know how th- I hadn't watched this before, but um, but yeah, uh, Boys in the Hood, written and directed by John Singleton, uh, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and uh, and Ice Cube and um, Larry Fishburne. Larry Fishburne, Morris Chestnut. Uh, amazing story about um, just life in uh, inner city LA um, and uh, and. The, the fight to try and break out of the uh, the stereotypes and the violence that are that are just perpetuated in that area um, I was completely fascinated by this movie and just it, it's it's incredible how how raw it is um, how uh, the amazing performances by these people that at the time nobody knew who they were uh, necessarily. And then you have someone like John Singleton, who was, I think it was 24 years old, uh, writing his first movie, directing his first movie, and making it something like this. Um, I thought it was it was an incredible film. I thought it was really well done. Uh, four stars. It's now my number one of 1991. It, it was just absolutely outstanding. I, I loved uh, I, I loved every minute of it. It's your number just, one of 91. It, it's really. my number one right as of right now. I mean, when was the last time you watched The Science of the Lambs, Terry? It's been a while, um, and I, I need to watch it again and kind of reassess that one because right now that's down to number three because I've got T two as my number two right now. So well, that's understandable. Yeah, but no, Boys I mean, in the Hood. Boys in the Hood is that, obviously great, but I mean, 
it, yeah, and and just the emotion, the raw emotion that comes out of that movie is is insane. It's just so good, it's so good. Okay, so, I, th- I go I've sometimes sorry, I've sometimes said that Ricky's mom's acting in the scene after he's he meets his end, shall we say? It's been thirty years. I think we could spoil it. I think is maybe the greatest acting I've ever seen on screen. Like that that one scene of her reaction is amazing. I guess I've said that a lot, but about other performances too, but it's got to be like on the list of great emotional scenes by an actor. And I think my favorite performance is Lawrence Fishburne too. I mean, just... Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he is just... That character is just outstanding. Furious, he's the he's one of the greatest dads of all time. Have we have done a dad power ranking? I, I I would have definitely put him on my list, top five. One yeah. of the greatest movie dads of all time. Yeah. Okay, so the second one, so that was like my biggest oversight. My second one is, I mean, so this is one I've watched before, but I didn't really remember anything about it, and for some reason, when I watched it, I didn't put it on my list as as a movie I'd watched, so I rewatched it. So this is 2011, so just back 10 years, nominated for three Oscars, one acting, one screenplay, and score. Didn't win anything, but nominated for those three. 2011. Well, 2011. Acting, screenplay, score. The acting was a notable first-time nominee that has since won. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Good job, Todd. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'd seen this one before. It had been a while. Uh, I didn't really remember anything about it, and I hadn't rated it, so I watched it again. I threw it back on the list as if I hadn't watched it before. Um, and I kind of got... The little bit I remembered was that it was kind of boring and not very memorable, and that's really what I got out of it this time around, too. Uh, I had trouble getting into it. It, it. I can tell there's a really cool story in there, I just can't focus enough on it to really find it because it just kind of meanders and is has a tr- tough time telling it. Um, I think Gary Oldman is amazing, um, and it's one of his. It's something that he's very subtle, which is rare for Gary Oldman, uh, which is why I think he got his first nomination for it. Uh, it's a star-studded cast. Uh, it, it's. I wanted to give it another try because that's all I really remembered is I didn't, is it wasn't very memorable and uh, it didn't disappoint again with being the exact same thing. So I gave it two and a half stars. Um, there, there's something good going on there, but I, I just couldn't get into it. Todd, I think you're a fan of this movie, right? Uh, yeah, to an extent. I, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like jumping up and down about it, but I do really like it. I think it's a really cold like slow building uh like spy movie i mean and that that kind of thing i i get into sometimes and i thought it was a good one see and i i usually do too but for whatever reason i just can't i just couldn't figure this one out it 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 just it just was was way too slow for me okay so uh now todd tell us about your trip into the cager so my cager review is uh the 2019 nick powell movie called primal which stars our boy nicholas cage as frank walsh who is a hunter who collects animals in the forest and then he brings them back to the u.s for a big payday and so he finds and tranquilizes this like really rare white jaguar 
uh, to bring back, but the ship that he's uh, on is also transporting this notorious, like, political assassin going back to the U.S. for a trial. So, obviously, there's some Con Air vibes in here, it's just on a ship. Uh, and But then the criminal escapes, uh, very eerily similar to the Signs of the Lambs. And um, then he frees all the animals on the ship to create chaos, and it's pretty much like Cage trying to save the day, which is awesome. Um, this uh, this director, Powell, is the director who directed Outcast, which is the worst Nicolas Cage movie that I've seen. But this is nowhere near as boring. It, it has some, like, really entertainingly bad CGI. Like, the, the leopard looks like this, like, giant spotted lizard. But it's got, like, a face of a seal. So, I, I don't really know. Well, I, it was really weird to watch. But, I mean, it was just, like, slithering around. But it was a jaguar, so it was really strange. Or, a le yeah, I don't know. And, and um... Cage is, like, doing really, like, normal Nicolas Cage things. Like, at one point, he does scream at this parrot. He's like, hey, man, are you kidding me here? Just because he was, like, accusing him of stealing his beer off the hood of his car. Like, it was, like, it was like totally a Nick Cage thing that, like, a freak out that we need to see uh, added to the Nicolas Cage losing his shit. Uh, it's, it's got, like, a surprising amount of, like, views from the, the, the killer's point of view, which makes it seem like this, like, really, like, Metal Gear-ish, like, sneaking video game thing, where he's, like, sniping out guards and, uh, messing with the control panels of the ship and stuff, and it, it does sort of look like this, like, giant abandoned warehouse on the, on the ship, and there's, like, of course a Mexican standoff. It's like a Tom Cruise movie that's, like, stuck in a, a Sylvester Stallone plot, and it's, like, so much of, like, a mid-90s movie that... It's hard to take uh, seriously in the present day. It was actually originally pitched in the mid '90s, which makes a lot of sense. It, it has its moments. They're not just necessarily. They're just not necessarily good moments. And so I'm giving it two stars, regardless, because I did have fun watching it. Um, I, I I now have 91 movies that are uh, in the cager, and this is number 65, which puts it between Rage and Valley Girl. So if you want a little perspective, that's where it goes. It has its moments, but they're not necessarily good moments. Yes. That that's, I that belongs on a movie poster. <laughs> <laughs> this movie would be proud to have that on its poster. Describes this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Uh, we have our featured review now, um, and I. I kind of like this whole idea of um, starting out the year with a lot of good critically acclaimed movies that are like going to be in the hunt for Oscars because this is usually like the boring part of the year. But now we've got like 2021 movies that are actually supposed to be good. Um, and, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, it is Malcolm and Marie. Mystery. The unknown. It's what supports the tension of a relationship. You're angry. No. The what if factor. Marie. 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 What if there's someone who loved them better? It is the latest Netflix release, um, written and directed by Sam Levinson, and um, and oh, there we go. Now it's just me. Okay. So, uh, written and directed by Sam Levinson, um, this has been getting some Oscar uh, and awards buzz. However, a lot of that probably died out this week when Zendaya was really shut out at everything. Uh, it stars John David Washington and Zendaya. Uh, Sam Levinson is the uh, showrunner for Euphoria, so this is reuniting with um, with the star there, Zendaya. And it's the two of them 
It's uh, and it's an hour and forty five minutes of them fighting one night, and that's it. That's the whole thing. Um, I was completely drawn in by this movie. I loved every minute of it. Well, not every minute, but I I loved I loved it. I loved the premise. I loved the performances. I I thought uh, it it was real. It was. Um, it was raw the way the the conversation and the argument and the fight kind of meandered from topic to topic and and who was upset and who wasn't upset who was the cool head uh i thought it was really cool it was um it felt realistic in how kind of life normally is when you are just kind of moving through uh different conversations different topics different arguments but there was definitely something that was at the root of it that they were getting to um it, it, it was great. I think it's the best John David Washington's ever been. I, I put Tenet on my bottom five of last year. And so uh, it was definitely better than that. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of him in, I don't think either of you have seen this, but he was uh, like the star diva wide receiver in the Dwayne Johnson HBO show Ballers. Um, but so, some of the charisma and personality that came out of him there, it kind of reminded me of it here. Uh, my favorite part was when he goes on like a 10 minute tirade on, uh, on film critics. Um, it almost made me scared to try and talk about this movie. Um, but, uh, I, I really, I really love this one. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was, it was intense, uh, for just being two people arguing for an hour and 45 minutes. It was engaging. It was never boring. Um, and, uh, three and a half stars. It, it's, it's the best film I've seen so far in 2021, which is out of two, but, uh, it, uh, that's what I'm going with. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's my take on Malcolm and Marie. Let's go to Todd next. Todd, what did you think of Malcolm and Marie? Uh, I agree with a lot of what she said. I, I think Levinson probably wrote it thinking it was like this, like slick update on like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf or something like that. But I think the clear inspiration for these characters are Jesse and Celine from the before movies because, like, the conversations feel like their conversations. Like, they overlap on each other. Their arguments feel real. Like, it's almost like they knew what each other was saying before they said it just because they're so in sync with each other. Uh, but I, I, think, I don't think this is the type of movie that should premiere on Netflix because, like, I feel like the audience for this movie probably isn't going to go to Netflix to watch it. And the people that are actually going to watch it are going to be ones that are going to be watching because it's the new movie on Netflix, or it's the new Zendaya movie, and they're going to hate it and turn it off after 15 minutes, which I've actually seen people say that they've done, but just because it's two people arguing with each other, and that's it. And But I, I, th I think there is like a real beauty to the screenplay. I think that the, the actors play off each other really well. And I, it, it's not like just hyper-intellectual stuff. Like It feels like a fight. Like It feels petty, it feels real, and it gets like ugly, and it gets mean. Which uh, I, I kind of like, and that, I mean, that, that feels like before midnight in a way. And I, I, I'm surprised though in a movie like this that's so concerned with race and stuff that it's not like concerned with the fact that there's like a serious age gap between the two. Like the hotshot director and his like young girlfriend who he's like mansplaining like William Wyler in film history too. Like, I mean, I don't care. Like Zendaya can do anything and she's like wise beyond her years. But like it just shows that cancel culture is kind of completely inconsistent and kind of stupid. Um... It, but in an Oscar season that's, like, all about these, like, play adaptations that feel like plays or literally are filmed versions of plays, this kind of feels like it could have been a play, but it feels more alive and it feels bigger because it uses the freedoms of film 
to make it feel that way, it's 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 more vital than One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because it 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 just feels like it's more like life and it feels like it uses film better. It's a little too long, I think. It's it's a little too preachy and it. But when it relaxes, I think it's pretty damn good. And I'm giving it three stars. All right, all right. Yeah, I heard that um, Sam Levinson wrote this and decided to make it because he was bored over quarantine, and like Euphoria had to be shut down so they couldn't do any more on that so it was like well i'm just gonna write a movie and a couple of my buddies are gonna make it so all right zach where are you at on this one so you know normally um movies about couples breaking down and fighting and their relationships coming apart are you know right up my right up my alley i mean blue valentine was one of my top 10 movies of the decade a couple of weeks ago i talked about the segment from uh Nine Lives with Robin Wright Penn and the other guy, I can't remember the actor's name, but uh, you know that was also about a, a tortured relationship. So going into this one, I had pretty high hopes. I like these two actors. Um, I got to say, though, this is like uh, you know that Tom Brady Super Bowl that he won that you apparently watched, Terry. I don't know what you guys were watching. I found this uh, really tedious, dull. I didn't think that the material was particularly um, illuminating or uh, insightful in any way. Um, I feel like these are conversations that... If I this this movie couldn't decide whether it wanted to be about the relationship between Malcolm and Marie or if it wanted to be about um, black representation behind and in front of the camera in Hollywood. Both of them are fertile topics, but I feel like if you're going to go for the conversations about representation, I would have rather just watch a director's roundtable on the Hollywood Reporter YouTube channel. Okay, I feel like those those are powerful insights that we don't need um, the ex, the extraneous information about their marriage falling apart to kind of distract us from. Okay, um, I think the opening 20 minutes of this movie are interesting. That should have been the whole movie. It should have been just the scene where Marie confronts him for not thanking her in his acceptance speech. That stuff was good. I even like how um, John David Washington's tie goes over his shoulder and I like that she makes a macaroni. That's compelling. That's interesting. It's a 20-minute one-scene play slash short film. That's what it should be. The rest of the movie drags on. It's interminable. Uh, I fell asleep a couple times. I got to be totally honest. Um, maybe I should I should uh, give it another shot. But to me, I felt like this was um, sort of a wasted opportunity because the filmmaker didn't know what what, what it wanted to be. Um, it felt very stage bound. Todd is right that it dragged on too long. Um, and again, it, it, these were points that I don't think are particularly revolutionary for anyone who's uh, giving this a thoughtful treatment and seeking this stuff out. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, I, I, again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot more to say about it. It just, it, it was not my cup of tea at all. And I appreciate the actors. I guess I appreciate the, the experiment, but, um, I, I felt nothing for this movie. It really kind of just bored me and lulled me to sleep. You gotta be honest. You need to watch, so you need your... some caffeine when you watch movies, man, because you fall asleep during <laughs> like 90% of the movies you say you watch. Okay, yeah, but I mean, this movie, there's there's nothing visually interesting about this movie, okay? The cinematography, to me, is very, like, it's trying to be 1960s avant-garde French New Wave sort of stuff, kind of didactic, unoriginal, okay? Um, and the conversations that they're having, I mean, again, it, it the relationship, I don't think, is enough to merit a whole movie about, okay? Um, 
the conversations are potentially um, interesting and, th and, and, you know, controversial in some ways and, and merit um, some, you know, treatment, but not in this format. And, you know, we, when you read more about Sa Sam Levinson, the sort of autobiographical details, I mean, there was some issues with him with a white uh, critic from the LA Times. It just felt very kind of like, um, you know, just self-referential and uh, not, not particularly um, cutting edge in any way. I think it's obvious I went in the wrong order. I should have gone to Zach after my re my review, and then uh, then we would have had Todd splitness in the middle. Zach, what's your uh, what's your rating of this? Two stars. Two stars. I will acknowledge that I you know I I should give it another chance, but I I have to be honest. I mean that my interest was in the first twenty minutes, and then I just gave up on it. I well, it, I, th fair, I think so it made its movie, point pretty early. They, they don't actually mention the thanking the in the speech until uh, over 20 minutes into the movie like that is not anything about the first 20 minutes of the movie what are you talking about i thought that the whole first 20 minutes of the movie is no, right she, after she they bring, come that home is not me. brought up until way later well okay so 20 minutes you so know you what i mean the, the first segment the of the first movie then then, okay. then they reconcile and i'm like okay this could this this is good it seems like it's coming to an end though so what what's the next chapter to this and there is no next chapter it's just the same fight resuscitated over and over again the same points made over yeah, and over again like there's marriage, nothing right? fresh yeah, yeah gotcha. well, but why are we watching it then jesse and celine okay at least you know what i mean i'll give you i'll give you before midnight right that you know, the, the last hour of that movie is a, is a fight in one place but we had context for those characters. Okay, we saw their their journey, their evolution. And this movie, I don't think, is really concerned with these characters' journey. Uh, it, it's it, they're kind of placeholders for I think what the director wants, basically a loudspeaker to say. I will say, as I was watching this, the the first thing I was thinking as I as I was going along is this is a Todd movie. This is a total Todd movie. Yeah, I was and, thinking that and, too. Yeah. <laughs> And I was also thinking, like, we did our uh, our power rankings of movies in one location uh, two weeks too early. Because this is another one that definitely would have qualified. Uh, Alright, well, it sounds like we've got we've got two on the plus side, one on the minus side. I gave it three and a half. Todd gave it three. Zach gave it two and needs to watch it again. Um, no, I don't. No, <laughs> please, no. I mean, maybe if I need, you know, if I don't want to take an Ambien or something and I just need to chill out, then maybe I'll go for it. But Did you watch One Night in Miami yet? That's my question. I have not. I'm, I'm afraid to for that, that same reason. I don't like the stage-bound stuff, okay? It doesn't <laughs> tend to work for me. I like the before series, but beyond that, and I like my dinner with Andre, but beyond that, but it's, it's sometimes a chore to watch. I mean, I yeah, but, like Fences, but, right? I mean, Fences, I... I yeah, but Fences was more cinematic. Fences had different characters in different locations. Like, it, 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 it you know... It was a different location. It was, like, on a garbage truck and then the house. And wasn't it felt, Fences, it, like, it was a word-for-word, word, like, it was the August Wilson play? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, and it, it wasn't just the stage-bound thing with this either. I just, I, really, I, the, it needed it needed to decide whether it was a movie about a marriage or a movie about Hollywood and race, and it, it really didn't marry either of them particularly well. Well, they weren't married, I'm pretty sure. No, they weren't. It right. didn't marry the different topics well, is what I meant. And I, I, I know what you That's not All what right, you so said. So we're not, <laughs> we're not thrice-approved, we're, we're twice-approved with, uh, with one detractor. Uh, it's on it's on Netflix. If any of this uh, sounds interesting, if you like kind of these uh, these real claustrophobic movies of all one location, 
uh, it might be worth checking out for you. Malcolm and Marie, um, you might be hearing about an award season, but so far it hasn't it hasn't looked good. It was one of those late entries uh, that comes out now that still counts. However, would you guys agree it's nice to have a January, February that's actually got real movies in it to start off our year instead of having to wait till the last month? Well, but, I mean, these aren't nominated. I mean, you get the limited releases in December that are released now, normally. Right, right. So, I mean, we, we always get this, but these aren't, these still aren't eligible for next year's Oscars. So, I mean, the, I mean, these aren't, hey, these true. aren't Get Out. This isn't, this isn't something we're going to be talking about for a year. But, we'll, but I'm looking forward to when we get to, like, July and talk about the best of the first half of the year that we're going to be talking about oh, yeah, Malcolm for and sure. Marie and Judas and the Black Messiah instead of the crap that normally comes out in February. Hey, listen, Terry, you be nice, okay? I, I like my Kevin Hart January releases, okay? There's, I got a soft spot for that stuff. I miss it. Uh, well, I'm sure that stuff's coming out still, too. But <laughs> Give me some Kevin Hart, some Kevin James, maybe. I miss it. I need it. Well, then, then watch uh, watch my other 2021 watch, which was Lockdown with uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor and Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Uh, that was... I've watched yeah. I've watched eleven twenty twenty one movies. I mean, like yeah, oh Mister Film Independent. Though I mean, you're watching you're all, all those. The, the little things is, is on, and that is available. I know. For everybody to I watch. haven't had time to watch the little things yet. I need to watch that one. Okay, time to get into uh, into the important stuff here, and that is our deep dive. Uh, we are celebrating the twenty fifth anniversary of Twister. Uh, 25th anniversary this year. It is our deep dive, our second deep dive of 2021. Uh, this was Zach's choice um, and uh, one of his all-time favorites. And it's interesting because I think Todd has only seen this once. I had never seen it before. So this was a first-time watch for me and uh, and uh, like a second-time watch for Todd and an all-time favorite for Zach. Uh, so... We're going to start with a little bit of trivia, and I'll admit I kind of screwed everything up as I was supposed to come up with some trivia, and Todd was supposed to come up with some trivia, and I came up with nothing, simply because I, I hate coming up with trivia the first time I watch a movie. I think I did this another time before, too, and I... Oh, Clueless! I, I was supposed to do this for Clueless, too, and I screwed up, so... See, I, I love coming up with trivia for the first time for a movie. That means I can't give up on it. It means I, I, there's an <laughs> incentive. I have to stay in it. Like, if I come up with trivia for Malcolm and Marie, that shit's going to two and a half stars. I guarantee you. <laughs> when it made you watch Sin what, City twice, right? I mean... What kind of macaroni did Zendaya make? All right, well, Todd, why don't, why don't we go through our uh, our trivia that you got here? Am I, I'm, just, I'm just quizzing Zach, I assume, right? <laughs> and, and, yeah, and if I... Well, you beat... Terry beat me at Clueless I did trivia, beat him at so Clueless, did, so, so maybe we'll... Uh, maybe something will happen here. We'll, we'll see. Well, so should I say one of you spits out the answer? Because Zach will probably get these, and you won't. Well, well, I'll let Zach do it, and I'll if I if I know the answer, I'll say I know the answer. How's that? Okay. So the first question is: What is written on Barn Burner's front license plate? No clue. Nope. <laughs> I have no idea. 
so that barn burner is Philip Seymour Hoffman's van and, or RV, and it says "Rock and Roll Forever." Yes. Which is very. Prominently Did you have to pause shown that one? one? No, it, it like and there's one scene where it's very prominently shown, but I mean, well, I guess I, guess, I mean, you have to look for it. I had to read it. <laughs> um, second question. According to Bill, Jonas has a lot of high-tech gadgets, but what two things does he not have? He doesn't have Dorothy, and he doesn't have... <sighs> Dorothy's one of them, right? Yeah, Dorothy's correct. He doesn't have... I know the line... Ex- I know exactly I what you're talking about. Go for it, Derek. I'm going to say, gonna say instincts. That's, that's the other one, yeah. Yeah! Good call. <laughs> one to one. <laughs> this is so stupid. I can't believe Terry does this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, what is Rabbit's advice for when you are in a severe lightning storm? Stick your ass in the air. And? <laughs> like, like uh, pull yourself down or something like that? Cover your head or something? Cover okay, yourself? That's, you got one of the two things. Terry, you know the other one? Nope. I, I just know that they talk about it's the uh it's the like best orifice. And I thought I I thought it was a good use of that word. He says grab your ankles and stick your butt in the air. That's what oh, okay. Uh what was playing at the Galaxy Theater with the Shining? Psycho Psycho. Psycho. <clears throat> exactly. And what you know what it was called? Like their double feature? Uh I was trying to look that up. I, I couldn't couldn't quite get the name of it. What was it? It was like Midnight of Horror or something. I It was something of horror. I, I can't remember exactly what it said. And my fifth question, because I only came up with five because Terry screwed this up, is... Yeah, uh, my bad. What is the name of the tractor shop that gets taken apart by the storm? I remember seeing it. I don't remember it, though. It's... it's doesn't it end with an SH or something? Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. I should get, like, a half point for that. Gorsh. Hell. <laughs> Gorsh, it's run by Goofy. Gorsh. So, wow. yeah, you did, uh, I mean, you got, what, one, two, three and a half out of, like, seven. Yeah, and Terry should have to lose five points because he didn't come up with any questions. <laughs> but he got one Luckily, of the answers. The, yeah, I got one of the answers. Luckily, these points don't matter at all. Well, uh, well, Zach, this is this is your deep dive. This one's your baby. So tell us about Twister and, uh, and why it holds such a such a close place in your heart well let's see twister is uh from the director of speed so i mean anything that john yon debont gives us um i'm I'm gonna be a fan of next year when we do our uh speed 2 cruise control deep dive we can also talk about uh his career um but yeah so this is uh you know classic 90s i mean you watch this movie it is like holy crap we are in the 90s you know give us some bill clinton some michael jordan some boys to men like you can just feel it this movie feels like you need to watch it on a vhs I think we said the same thing about Apollo 13. And speaking of Apollo 13, we we, 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 ha- we we have, I believe it was Terry's MVP of uh, Apollo 13, none other than the Fred Hayes show, Bill Paxton, uh, as as Bill, and uh, Helen Hunt in her first non-TV role Matt, from Mad About You uh, it, as, as Joe. You know, I, a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, Mystic Pizza, the Julia Roberts movie for the first time, and um, when uh, the Lily Taylor and Vincent D'Onofrio characters in that movie are named Bill and Joe, and I thought, the, those are the characters in Twister. That 
is a metaphor for how much I, I know and love this movie. That that I immediately, the first thought that came to my mind out of two obscure characters from an 80s movie were, oh, they're the same names as the names in the movie Twister. Anyway, I love this movie. I don't know how you guys haven't watched it. We grew up in different universes, you know? We, we all grew up on the in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s. You guys were watching Gone in 60 Seconds and Police Academy. I was watching Clueless and Twister. I, we, you know, different worlds, I guess. Maybe there was the Columbia River that, that, that divided us, but uh, I don't know how you guys missed out in this one i've seen this movie maybe maybe as many times as any other movie except for apollo 13 wow yeah i i don't know how i how i missed out on this one i just I, it, we just never watched it todd you, Miss, you've at least out. seen it before what, what about you well uh, yeah i had watched it at one point but i i told zach like a couple months ago all i remember is that todd field was in it which is like <laughs> <laughs> the dumbest detail I could possibly come up with, but I mean, but that's about it. So I didn't really remember it. I mean, I watched it twice this week, and I mean, God, I mean, it is it is entertaining to watch, even though it is really dumb. Uh, yes. But I, I mean, I'm I'm okay with it. It's it's not. I I mean I I'm not really a disaster movie guy. I guess I mean I don't really like a lot of the a lot of the big like hurricane movies tsunami movies like i I think they're all kind of dumb and and but this this one i mean takes the cake for like action movie dumb which i mean it should be my thing because this is definitely my era of action movies that i love so i i mean i i'm 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 curious to see what terry said because i i i i don't know (laughs) yeah i i agree with a lot of what you just said it is uh it is very entertaining uh and it is very dumb and corny at the same time. Um, I, I've got it like I've got it at two and a half stars right now, just because I mean it is fun, and and I was really entertained by it. I would probably watch it again in a heartbeat, but at the same time, I couldn't get over just how dumb it was at times, and just how just <laughs> like I mean it it I I felt like yeah it, it's. Come, he- you know you want to say it. Just say it. What? It had its moments, just not <laughs> good ones. moments. Not necessarily good ones. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It was. It was uh, the exact same thing there. Um. Yeah. It. It was. I mean, it was fun. It was fun. So uh, I. I. Like I said, it's entertaining, but it's really. I mean, it's not what what we would call smart, in a lot of ways. Um. So I will say I want to I want to throw this out there. We had one person write in uh, on Twitter and give his thoughts on Twister before uh, before we recorded here, and it is uh, Shattuck the Review Guy on on Twitter at Shattuck Review Guy. Uh, he said Twister was kind of cool at the time, uh, and I do look back on it every once in a while. My favorite thing about it, I think, was the visual effects. It was so cool seeing, um, as well as Bill Bill Paxton. Uh, may he rest in peace. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say that you know, I mean, you can shit on the movie all you want. It ha- it's terrible at, at at many moments. I agree. However, one thing that has held up really well is this movie does have some great special effects. I mean, even even 25 years later, these visual effects hold up because this was right before everyone really started going to CGI. Now, obviously, there's some CGI in this movie, and some of the CGI still doesn't look great. But like, 
I was watching the behind the scenes of this movie and like they didn't just you know do a special effects thing or, or a digital composite of like the town of Wakita. they went to like a little town and destroyed the whole town they destroyed like seven blocks of it and you can tell in that sequence like that is not that's not digital effects at all that, that is real and like the sky I was really impressed by this time watching it like the skyline I mean th- th- there is some like very very real authenticity to this movie that if it were made today would just be outsourced to an industrial light and magic type outfit and it just wouldn't feel the same and i think that's something that is unique to 90s movies that makes movies like this hold up pretty well, well. but i will say that in is, that respect i will say that is one thing i miss about 90s action movies is that that mix of um of practical effects and just that the beginning of cgi um i will say though yeah the effects are cool for the most part but there's some pretty crappy effects in this too <laughs> Like, basically, anything but the Twisters is a pretty bad effect. I mean, like, at one of the very first shots is, like, the satellite in space looking this down on The satellite's pretty bad. And I was like... That's pretty bad. I mean, th- this happened a year after Apollo 13. I mean, they could have taken the VHS copy of Apollo 13 and looked at those special effects and made it look more realistic as a VHS copy than they would have of doing what they actually did. And some of the explosions are pretty, are pretty bad. Too. but I, the, the twisters are are amazing well I, I feel like the further it gets away from the twister when it's showing what it's actually doing it the worse it gets because then you could just see like when it takes apart a barn or something like that and you can see it from a distance and it, it just looks like they're it's like a model that they just like collapsed or something but i mean but the closer you get to it the more cool it actually looks i think yeah i mean the you know the house is collapsing don't you're right. They don't look that great. The the flying cow. I was watching it this time. I thought, man, that looks like that looks so terrible. It looks like an animal from Jumanji. And, and lo and behold, <laughs> it was from Jumanji. I didn't even realize that. That's one of the worst moments of the movie, but it's probably the most iconic moment from the movie too. Uh, lots of theories about that cow that I'll say later. But uh, you know, the movie is more than just the special effects, though, because the story is so laughably bad. I mean, I I hope Terry, you could at least appreciate that. And and you too, Todd. Like. This this screenplay is terrible. I mean, it uses every single. This is this movie is an encyclopedia of movie cliches. And you know, you want to if you want to study derivative writing, lazy writing, watch this movie because there's a certain like Zen brilliance to it. I mean, the line where you know I thought he was I, I, when he told me he was chasing uh, tornadoes, I thought that was just a metaphor. I mean, you can't make that writing up like that. That takes skill, okay? Skill in bad movie writing. So I don't know. I just love it. Uh, Can't get enough of it. That that is that's amazing. That's an amazing take right there. I like it. It, it it's so brilliant in its laziness. That that's that that belongs on a movie poster too. <laughs> Write that shit right, down. Well, <laughs> yep. Well, let's get into uh into our first topic we're gonna be talking about with um with Twister, and that is our Mount Rushmore. That has been inspired by Twister. And this Mount Rushmore, we had, we kind of threw around a couple ideas, and the one we landed on was movies set in the Midwest. And, uh, and so we're getting to a Mount Rushmore of that. So we tried to, like, like, give a hard definition for this, a hard objective definition for what a movie, what a, what the Midwest is. And then we, we found, so we went to Wikipedia and said, what's the Midwest? And we looked at it and said, that sucks. So we kind of made our own our own rules. Yeah, apparently so, this movie doesn't even apply. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. uh, so we took the Wikipedia definition, but we subtracted Ohio and Michigan and Chicago and <laughs> added in Oklahoma because Oklahoma apparently isn't in the Midwest. Yeah, apparently it's in the Deep South or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> And uh, and we're excluding Fargo too. Oh yeah, and we can't, we can't choose Fargo <laughs> because I mean it, it's it's Fargo. That that's the that's the rule. Uh, I feel like the, as the one Midwesterner on this show, I feel like the Upper Midwest is a distinct culture from the Central Midwest. So I I stuck more to the Central Midwest when I was thinking of this. You're you're defining yourself as a Midwesterner now. Oh, absolutely. That's one. Well, you know, it's one of the things I love about this movie is that I think it gets, I think it gets the Midwest actually pretty accurate. I've also, I believe, I'm the only one on this podcast who's actually been in the proximity of a tornado, and uh, it, this movie is very accurate in that respect. But I'll shut up about that. Let, okay. Let's let's go to the list. So, so yeah, we we are di- uh, not including Fargo. Um, I was on Twitter recently or today, and Adam made sure to remind everyone that Fargo doesn't count. And I shared the gif of the uh, of the Truco couple saying, "You're talking like we didn't go over that already." And uh, I thought it was You're it was a damn liar. Yeah. End of story. <laughs> End of story. Okay. Uh, so um, I let's see here. Who's gonna go first here? Um, th- this is this is Zach's show. Zach gets to go first. Okay, so we're not um, agreeing on this, right? This, this is not an. This is not. Yeah, a, yeah, no, no. We have no consensus okay. going into it, so we're each going to give our own, and then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll throw the fourth one out there. I will say, um, uh, Ben Brown, a friend of the podcast, was supposed to be on with us today. Uh, he had to cancel at the last minute, so we weren't even going to have a consensus because we were going to have four of us submitting. But now, now we're going to have one. So, uh, anyways, Zach, you're you're first to submit. So if we're not going with Twister for the uh, consensus, I'm, I guess I'm not shocked. Um, but I wanted to go with something, like I said, not upper Midwest, different culture. Uh, something that is not just set in the Midwest, but also embodies the Midwest and its characters. And again, just not haphazardly set here. It has to really be part of the story. So I had a few movies in mind, but the one that really stuck out the most to me, that really um, really emblematized what it's like living here in this hellhole, what, you know, you, you West Coasters and East Coasters out there call flyover country, you know, uh, with disdain, um, is uh, a movie from 1993. That is, what is eating, What's Eating Gilbert Grape? I love this movie. Um, it introduced the world to Leonardo DiCaprio and Johnny Depp gives a great performance in it. Darlene Cates is amazing. Um, John C. Riley's in it. It is set in small town Ohio, uh, Iowa. Excuse me. I can't remember the name of the town in Iowa. I should have done some research. But boy, does that movie get the Midwest right. I mean, the local, there's like a little war going on between the, the mom and pop uh, local grocery store and then the big Walmart type uh, corporate uh, grocery store on the outskirts of the town and how they ride their bike everywhere and Leo climbs up the water tower. Oh my gosh. I mean, when I moved here 10 years ago, that that is so true about um, small town life in the Midwest. I don't live in a town that small, but that movie captures it perfectly. Really just well done movie. Lassie Hallstrom's best movie, you know, made by someone not from the Midwest, um, but I think captures it better than any movie that I can think of. All right. I have not seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape. What? Yeah. Come on, man. I, <sighs> I haven't seen that one. I like how you you looked at it as 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 a movie that defines the Midwest. Though I I kind of thought of it more as as like the Midwest that like the Midwest vibe plays a role in the movie. 
I, that's kind of, that's kind of how I like, like it, it's part of the identity of the movie. Um, yeah, like I, I, think I, I, for my, I didn't like look up like the best movies set in the Midwest or anything. Like the movies I, I, I thought of, I, like I have eight written down and like none of them did I have to question whether they were in the Midwest. Cause they actually feel like they're in the Midwest. I, I, it wasn't just like randomly that the movie happened to be right. in the Midwest. Yeah. And it was a great movie. Yeah, if if I had to yeah. if I had to stop and think for a second, wait, was this in one of those states? It didn't count because it, it, it needs to just be like, yes, this is this is a part of what that is. Okay, I'm gonna go next. Um this uh this might not be a, a huge shock, the one I'm gonna go with, because I'm going super classic. I'm going the Wizard of Oz. Um talk about another twister here. Uh but I mean it, it I guess a lot of it isn't set in Kansas, but Technically, it is because it's all in her mind. Um, uh, but it's—I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made, um, and uh, and it, it it stands the test of time. It's one of the most rewatchable movies of all time, um, and uh, and it, you're hard pressed to to, uh, to tell me that it's not an iconic Midwest movie. So uh, so yeah, I'm going Wizard of Oz. How do the Twister special effects in Wizard of Oz compare to the ones in Twister? What do you think? Well, I mean, I did what <laughs> it it uh it, it had effects that that you didn't even see in Twister in the fact that it was a house that was actually in the Twister. That's there true. Is a house that's there in was the a Twister. We're going in. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a bike that flew on their windshield. Maybe it was Miss Gulch's bike. Although uh, I think it was a tricycle. Conspiracy yeah. theory. All right, so we've got we've got what's eating Gilbert Grape. We've got the Wizard of Oz. Todd, where are you going? I mean, I was thinking one could be our consensus, but I will go with it because I didn't think that either of those are going to be mentioned, and that's Hoosiers. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think that there's any real question that's one of the great Midwest movies. It looks like the Midwest. It feels like the Midwest. It's basketball in a way that only the state of Indiana can look like, and yeah, it's one of the reasons why it's the greatest game ever invented, as Shooter says. So, yeah, Hoosiers, it's, it, it was an easy choice. Yeah, I think that, that easily could have been our consensus, so way to screw this up, Todd. Um, well, Wizard of Oz <laughs> probably could have been that, too. <laughs> true, true. But, alright, so we've got, uh, we've got What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Wizard of Oz, Hoosiers, now we've got to agree on one. Um, my top one left, I don't think we're going to agree on because my top one left is three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah, that was yeah. on my top eight. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was, if I hadn't picked Wizard of Oz, I was going to pick that just to make, make it be up there. But I, I mean, talking about getting the, the Midwest right, I felt like that did in a lot of ways. Um, and Zach, you make us feel like these West Coast elites. I mean, we... We're, we have these Midwest roots and uh, go That's back true. to Nebraska quite often. That so, is very, um, very yeah, true. Yeah, Nebraska's not flyover when I could go watch the Cornhuskers play there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a year yeah. when that happens. Exactly, exactly. Very true. Good points. So, uh, I mean, we have more Midwest roots than you do, I think. <laughs> oh, that's not true. My, my whole family, well, Illinois. okay, my whole family's from Chicago, yep. Chicago which we do count which as we the Midwest. Do <laughs> Okay, Apparently, you're right. Chicago so the, doesn't count. So, so consulting with the true Midwesterners on this podcast. Okay, I'll I'll have to believe you, especially because I know you spent more time in Missouri than I have. But 
Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else, What are we going with here? Well, the other ones um, I wrote down, I have uh, the Alexander Payne movie, Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, Mysterious Skin, which is set in Kansas, of course. Uh, as oh, along forgot about Along that with one. Capote, because obviously that's also oh, in Kansas. Oh, yeah. Boys Don't Cry is a very Midwest movie in Nebraska. A History of Violence, obviously, in Indiana. And uh, one that I think is low-key, one that we could agree on, is Inside Out, because it is Minnesota. Cause she's no, a, it's in California. It's in, it's in San Francisco. Or she, yeah, or she's it's in from, San Francisco. She's, she's from she's Minnesota. She's from Minnesota. But yeah, she's but always it's not here. set in Minnesota. She longs she's, for Minnesota. With her hockey. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on how much you're actually... It, I guess the whole movie is to take place there. We already have one list that takes place in the girl's brain, okay? We don't need two. All right. I've got uh, I've got a few more here that I wrote down. Um, uh, I've got Cedar Rapids. I mean that was that's a fun yeah. one. Um, I've got uh, Field of Dreams, classic, classic there. Uh, and then uh, if you want to go kind of old school Midwest, uh, Dances with Wolves. Kind of it oh. takes. I think it's Midwest. Well, I was trying to figure out exactly where it takes place, but it was shot in Kansas, so I went with it. You could go with like the Revenant too, because that's supposed to be like in like North Dakota, right? Oh. No, I thought that was more west. I thought that was more like Pacific Northwest, almost like maybe. No, it's not Pacific. Montana. That does not give off a Midwestern vibe. And that movie. the last one I have written down is kind of pushing our boundaries a little bit, but I think it counts as set in the Midwest, and that's a league of their own. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. all that's Indiana fair. and Ohio, right? Racine and Kenosha. Even though the opening scenes apparently take place in Oregon, which they obviously don't. No, and, and then they go they go to uh, Wrigley Field to try out, but that's the last time that's they fair. see Chicago. It's in Chicago. That's the last time they see Chicago. Then the rest is in uh, what Rockford, Racine, South Bend, and Kenosha. So, all right, um, I had uh, Breaking Away, uh, The Bridges of Madison County. Um, most most of Terms of Endearment takes place in the Midwest, although some of it does take place in Texas. Uh, Paper Moon, In Cold Blood, um, Jesus's Son, Badlands, The Rider, and of course, in honor of a friend of the podcast, Kevin Wilmot, Jayhawkers. Oh, of course, of course, you gotta go. Of course. So, so Adam, Adam did reply. I put out on Twitter, um, "What are your favorite movies based in the Midwest?" and uh, and Adam replied with uh, a few to add to the list too: Blood Simple, Field of Dreams, Halloween, Gone Girl. I think is that Chicago. Not Missouri. Oh, Missouri. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eight Mile, but that, I mean, we discounted mm. Detroit. He didn't know that. And uh, American Pie. I don't know where that one's at. So, uh, of all the ones that you you guys mentioned, the one that sticks out to me is one that Todd mentioned, which is Boys Don't Cry. I had forgotten about that. And that is, a that is like, very, very distinctively Midwest and Nebraska. We I don't think we have any films from Nebraska on our list so far. So, we, we got to include that. I, I feel like that, I don't know. I feel strongly toward that. We all do love Nebraska, too. Yeah. I, I'd be good with Nebraska. I had that on my list. I've never seen Boys yeah. Don't Cry. So we want to go with Nebraska? We got to shout out Alex whenever we can. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a good part of that movie does take place in Montana as well, but it's the eastern part of Montana, which almost qualifies as the Midwest. I think it's fair to call that. I think you could call Yeah, I think, I mean... <clears throat> Once you get over the Rockies in Montana, it's basically the same as North Dakota. So, 
is it though? I, I don't. I've never been to that part of the, the country before. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I mean, we've been there, haven't we, Todd? Were we in like like Butte and Billings and? Yeah, we drove all the way across Montana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds fun. All right. Anyways, we're getting off topic. Nebraska is our fourth submission. I'm sad we can't go with three billboards, but Todd and I both I were like, we wanted to get get our 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 submissions out there, and so we. We took the low-hanging fruit and left the, the more controversial one. All right. So we're done with that. We're done with our Mount Rushmore. Time to move on to our recasting of this movie, which is going to be fun. This is going to be a good one. All right. So uh, we have... <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah. We'll see how this goes. All right. So starting with Bill, uh, played by the late, great Bill Paxton, Fred Hayes himself. Um, let's go, uh, let's go Todd first. Uh, well, Bill Paxton, I mean, <laughs> I think he was my worst performance <laughs> in a Paul 13, if I remember right. Yes, oh. I, I remember that, yeah. I mean, okay, so throughout this movie, I thought he was just doing a Keanu Reeves impression. Like, his voice sounds like, he's like, oh man, <laughs> like the whole time. I don't know, I went with somebody who looks more like an action star, so I went with Garrett uh, Hedlund. I, I don't think there's anything distinct about Bill Paxton that looks like he's from the Midwest, or that he could be playing that role. But So, I mean, Garrett Hedlund, I think, would be a lot more interesting to watch than Bill Paxton. Okay, okay. Zach? Um... Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I thought was necessary for this role was to have some sort of, like, vaguely Midwestern Southern accent like Bill Paxton has. Um, And to, you know, be really pissed off a lot of the time. Bill has anger problems, right? Which is probably why he saw the shrink. Um, Conspiracy theory. I'm going to go with Matthew McConaughey because that's the low-hanging fruit. But the other reason I like it is because um, instead of having Dodge as the product placement vehicle, we could replace it with Lincolns. I think easy transition to do. True. All right, all right, all right. Isn't McConaughey like way just too keep old living. for that? Hey man, just keep living. So I I looked at uh I looked at Bill and uh, first off I saw that this was originally supposed to be Tom Hanks. Like like he he read the part he he did like cast readings he designed the wardrobe for the character that Bill Paxton ended up wearing. Like th- that's how far Tom Hanks went into this before he had to There's back out. Sophisticated costume one shirt that he never changes out of. Even <laughs> yes, though he gets yes, like soaked exactly. and dirty and. <laughs> Anyways, I I what I focused on with Bill Paxton was kind of his everyman quality and just how he's kind of just this average guy. And so I went with John Krasinski. That's yeah, not bad. Like I could I could legit see him starring in this movie if it were made today. All right, now we're moving on to Joe, played by uh, Helen Hunt, which, and obviously, we haven't said it yet, but this is obviously Mike Myers' favorite Helen Hunt movie. Twister! <laughs> um, Todd, what is, your, what is your recasting for Joe? Uh, well, I mean, you could go with, like, the TV star making the, like, strange action appearance that she doesn't belong in, which I actually wrote down Kaylee Cuoco, which was mentioned earlier on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But the one I actually think that should play it is, like, Alicia Vikander. Like, I mean, she pretty much does these kind of things, and Yon DeBont did direct a a Tomb Raider movie uh, later. (laughs) So, I mean, there's that connection as well. 
He did. He did. Alright. That's not bad. I like that one. Zach, who do you have? So, I'm sorry to make this prolonged, but I went with Kaylee Cuoco. <laughs> no she shit, I can like even show too. you my notes. <laughs> and, you know, the transition from T, if she got nominated for a Golden Globe, I will be honest, I don't think I've ever seen Kaylee Cuoco in anything. So, yeah. I don't, re- but why not, you know? Maybe she'll win an Oscar next year at this rate. So, so we're taking, we're taking the, the blonde dits in the in the science show of Big Bang Theory, and we're turning her into the actual scientist. I feel like we're casting you Denise so. Richards as a rocket rocket scientist in James Bond right now. She was a rocket scientist in uh, Starship Troopers. That that she pulled that off pretty well. Okay, um, I I went with I, I went with a little more star power. I know Helen Hunt wasn't necessarily a, a big movie star at the time. But I mean, this is what two years from her winning an Oscar. So uh, I went with a, a young Oscar winner that I feel like could pull off the 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 vibe of the role, but also sound smart, and that's Emma Stone. I mean, she could easily do it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Terry, your picks are too safe, man. You got to get out there. You got to. By safe, you mean good. Then yes, that is exactly what my picks are. We're not actually recasting this movie, you know. I mean, totally this recasting. is this is all hypothetical. You you are aware of that, right? Like we can have fun with this and say shit like Kaylee Cuoco. These guys weren't well, big I mean, stars you, you though at the time some, either. Uh, Peter Simonoshek in almost every movie that we we recast. So I, I, my point exactly. No, yeah, I, I want to do this right. I'm fun. looking to do this right. That's what I'm going. For. <laughs> all right. Next we have. Oh, you're gonna love my next pick then. We have Dusty, uh, <laughs> played by the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. The late, great, late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Todd, who do you got? Yeah, I mean, he died almost, what, seven years ago to the day. <laughs> All right? Something like that, day, yeah. The Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Uh, I went with, Was that game really seven years ago? Gosh. The I went with somebody who kind of looks like him. Um, Jesse Plemons. Not Jesse Plemons. It's Caleb Landry Jones. Oh. I don't think Jesse Plemons could be that character necessarily, but Caleb Van Jones absolutely could. I don't know. I mean, he, I when, when I saw it, and I was like, I just kept picturing him the rest of the movie, at least the second time I watched it. That's not so bad. I, think I that, like that. I think that's a terrible pick, but I would absolutely watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and Roll uh, well, Forever then... would never appear on Jesse Plemons' RV. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, what do you and got? it would appear on Caleb Landry Jones's. Yes, um, yes, you watch three billboards. <laughs> so I need to explain my pick. So my favorite piece of trivia about this movie is how on the early VHS screeners, if you paused it at a certain second oh, of the movie, yeah, uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman was sitting in a in a lawn chair and had his genitals exposed because he was pulling like a Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. So. I felt like I would have to recast an actor who would actually have the audacity to do something like that. There were only two choices that came to mind. They were Jason Siegel and Sasha Baron Cohen. Why not? Let's just go with Borat himself, Sasha Baron Cohen as Dusty. I mean, you could maybe mix in the Borat accent, um, maybe the mannerisms, um, the fist pump, the worst fist pump in the history of filmmaking in the last scene of this movie. 
I'm I'm on board for it. If we're going Caleb Landry Jones, why not? I don't think Sasha Baron Cohen could ever pass as a Sooner fan. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the bar we're setting here. That I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, I think I think my pick is a lot more on uh, on par with what Todd picked, and uh, it's not Caleb Landry Jones, but I went with Will Poulter, who I'm always trying to make a thing. But it's a sim- it's a similar vibe. I mean, I think I think he could pull off the the kookiness and craziness of uh, of this character pretty easily. I mean, just think, just think a more like caricature version of what he does in uh, in Midsummer. That's that's what we're looking at here. So, uh, so Will Poulter is my pick. I like it. Yeah. All right. Now we've got uh, we've got Jonas played by uh, Carrie Elwes. Uh, Todd, what do you got? Well, the villain of the film. Yeah, Carrie Ellis is one of the worst actors alive. Um, so <laughs> he's got, I mean, so it's got to be someone that's really unlikable, and that you're gonna want to go up and punch, and people are gonna actually let you do it in a crowded area. Like that's like what Bill I thought did. of too. The, who is the most punchable <laughs> yeah. actor working right now? I mean, and for me, it's Justin Long. I and he, he looks like <laughs> no, someone who would be chick. chasing a storm, and like. <laughs> Like, a- as, like, a rebel, too. Like, he stole your idea, and he's chasing the storm, too. Like, yeah. Justin Long seems, like, easily that kind of character. Plus, he are- he's already played, like, a professor. He could play some sort of, like, pseudo-intellectual. So, yeah. That's a good Yeah, that's a good I like that one. It's That's better than my pick. I-, I went with one who I've been using a lot. Maybe he's my new Peter Simonashek. I went with Daniel Craig with a southern accent. <laughs> I, you could have a lot of different possibilities for that, but I think he could fit in well here. Your cast is way too old, man. <laughs> These people were all like 35 to 40. Well, that's my gimmick, is that I went really old and Kaylee Cuoco. He, he went with people who could have been cast in this in 1996. Yeah. And just, yeah. Oh, no, we know who's getting cast as Bill in 1996. It's, it's, the, one, it's the man, Dennis Quaid. I did, this was a Dennis yeah, Quaid no, role, he, yeah. he okay? Like Rewind that. This is a Dennis Quaid. Well, that's maybe another conspiracy we can talk about later. But let, let's hear your picture. All right, my my Jonas. Uh, I went for a very a very punchable face also, and ever since he was General Hux in Star Wars, Dom Hall Gleason has been one of those punchable faces. Mm, that's a good one. Um, so uh, so that was the one I had to go with here. I mean, it yeah, it like just it. fit too perfectly. Okay, now we've got uh we've got Aunt Meg next. Um, who was played by Lois Smith. Uh, this Todd, was stupid. This, this, this was your call, Zach. This is why I, we you don't got, pick who we recast. Listen, I, well, okay, so let me get a quick backstory here. I was thinking, okay, well, there's got to be a fifth character, so it's either Melissa or Aunt Meg, and I stupidly went with Aunt Meg. The moment I started rewatching this movie, I'm like, God damn it, we should have recast Melissa. So I'm both. hoping you guys also. I have okay, Melissa I, as well. I, okay, good. Aunt Meg's stupid, but whatever. Well, let's, <laughs> Melissa's way more interesting. Let's do it anyways. Todd, who do you got? Uh, for my Aunt Meg, uh, I mean, Lois Smith is hard to recast. Like, she she has looked the same for the last 40 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, the exact same. But, I mean, someone in that age range, I mean, th- this is a total Ann Dowd role. Like I, I, I mean I, 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 I mean I can't even think of another good option. Like Anne Dowd is, is totally Aunt Meg. She even looks like she's from the Midwest. She might be. <laughs> All right, Zach, who do you got? 
Yeah, I went with Ellen Burstyn, but the more I'm thinking about it, maybe I'd go with that actress from the St- uh, Bubble, the Steven <laughs> Soderbergh movie, because she's never done any. She's probably working at Wendy's again, so let's get her back in the industry. Where was that movie set? I forget. I think that was West Virginia. Okay. Not not quite the Midwest. All right. Uh, well, I'm trying to look something up here. And as soon as I have it, I'll, I'll reveal. See, I, I I would go with character actress Margot Martindale, yes. but I think she would make I think she would make a better Joe's mom. There's more of a physical resemblance in that scene. See, I all right. So I would have um, when I when she first came on screen. Um, I don't know if I'd actually seen or if I had noticed who Lois Smith was when she, before and anything. So when she came on screen, I actually thought it was Conchata Farrell who was like the, she's been in some of the Adam Sandler movies. She was in Two and a Half Men. Um, so I was going to oh. recast her, except she died last year, so I, I couldn't really recast her. Uh, but yeah, that that's who the, immediately who I thought of when I saw she's her right. walk on screen. Like, she's is that lady in Mr. Deeds? Yeah, I think she's in Mr. Okay, Deeds. Yeah. She's in Mystic, uh, Mystic Pizza. Oh, okay. I don't think anybody's seen that, Doug. <laughs> you haven't seen Mystic Pizza? Isn't that the I Matt Damon movie? Yeah, it's like his well, first yeah, role. Yeah, it's his first role, but it's a Julia Roberts movie. <laughs> it was a good movie. <laughs> Worth checking out. Anyways, uh, so I'm I'm looking for classic Midwest, like, cool aunt. I went with Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So now now the, the forgotten choice. Uh, this Doctor, is the fun one. Dr. This Melissa. Is... Oh. Uh, originally this, yeah. played by Jamie Gertz. This is the one that I want to, I really want, okay, especially Terry, we got to get out of the box here. I'm really curious to see what you guys came up with for this one. All right, Todd, who do you have? I mean, I don't know that this is all that easy to recast, because, I mean, it is such a bland character, (laughs) but it's played with a lot of just, like, weirdly, like, raw sexiness, so I went with Jessica (laughs) Biel. I, I could see her being like a psychiatrist or something, and what? I, I, I don't know. She's the right. She's, she's in that right age range. I had like a few options, and that one. I mean, I, I honestly can't recast it. Uh, I don't. When I see Jamie Gertz, I don't think raw sex appeal. But then again, I'm not you, Todd. I mean, in the movie, different. I mean, I've never seen her in anything else. I don't think. I don't know who she is. I've seen her at the NBA draft. We can talk about that a little later. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, who did you recast? As He's a... Terry, did, Terry really didn't know that reference. I'm a little surprised. Um, okay. I thought, <laughs> look, there are three actresses out there who you can cast as a sex therapist. Okay. And they are. And it, this goes along with my whole gimmick here. Kim Cattrall, Isabel Huppert, and Jennifer Jason Lee. You pick one, okay? It's really one of those. <laughs> and that goes along with my, my um, you know, Gen X cast here. Everyone born before 1960. Except so for the main I think character. I... Dude, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I... No, who are you casting right now? That's why I chose Jessica Biel. I mean, yeah, the one... Like, yeah, Annie McDowell or something is easy to recast in 1996. But who, who are you casting right now? <laughs> Kim Cattrall. No, who are you casting or, or right Isabel? now to be legitimately married to, like, a 35-year-old? Matthew McConaughey? In my cast. That's that's my cast. He's an older woman. Oh, yeah, because his ex-wife is, like, 25. <laughs> yeah. Good job, Zach. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, it's it's not like the studio pick that Terry's going to come up with. But 
So go ahead, Terry. Who the studio oh, pick? Gee, gee, thanks, thanks for building it up for me there. Um, yeah. So I, the first name that popped into my head when I thought about this character of just like the person that has to just sit back and react to everything, uh, Aubrey Plaza. I actually thought about her too. I like, thought about she her has too, a, but I mean, like, I always yeah. pick her. <laughs> I don't, There's a sort so of comic it. vulnerability with her that would make it really interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good pick. See, I, I think it's better than Jessica no. Biel. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean probably. Aubrey Pauls is always better than everybody, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that was fun. Um, <laughs> who, who would Nicolas Cage play? I mean, in 96, he would be Bill. <laughs> Right? Yeah, Bill or Jonas. He's he's one of the two. Well, he played a weatherman before, so that could work as either of them, really. Can't I mean, you this see is like the like same Jonas is like attacking air, the storm? Like, he's like, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm going into the storm! <laughs> and then he and then he gets taken up and blows up and dies. That, that, that could easily be Yeah. Too. So, um... I have a lot of theories about the Van Halen song for this movie, which is on the DVD. It's called Humans Being. Not human beings or human being, but humans being. And the drummer for Van Halen looks a lot like Nicolas Cage. So that's who I'm going to go with. Alex Van Halen. So so Nicolas Cage would play the drummer for Van Halen in the movie Twisted. In the music video for, for this movie, yeah. Humans Being. Oh, boy. I really didn't. I, I mean, if, if we're talking 96, he's he's the main character. Uh, if we're talking now, I don't know. He's the guy running the control center that's talking to Jonas. That's, yeah. that's what I'm going with. I think if he's Jonas, you got to give like a Ghost Rider, like maniacal laugh when he goes into the twister or something, right? It's got to be a little bit more theatrical and spectacular. Yeah. God, raise it up enough. I, I finally, okay, Zach, you'll appreciate this. So the guy I just met, I just referenced, the guy who's running the control center that's talking to Jonas, I, yeah. I, when I saw him, I'm like, I recognize this guy, but I couldn't place him. I just placed him. He's the anchor of the uh, of the reenacted news footage in Apollo 13. Wow. He's the guy who talks to Jeffrey Kluger in the in those uh, in those news. Is this the guy who goes the, the, the heat shield with the paper? Yeah, that we're yeah, talking yeah, about? yeah. And the, the guy's like, now they have too much carbon dioxide. That's that's really that's him. I thought that's impressive. I didn't even. I thought that was archival. I didn't even know that was sh- a lot of it. A movie. lot of it is archival, but that part. I mean, the guy. Yeah, the guy who talks about you know hit the hit the sheet of paper. That's actually Jeffrey Kluger, the guy who wrote the Apollo thirteen book, Lost Moon. Um, oh, interesting. And so that okay. was that and was. And the guy talking to him is the guy with the gray hair at Mission Control in this movie. Yep. Good to know. I just placed it. I just figured it out. I'm like, I know I recognize this guy. That's who it was. That's who it was. Wow, I'm really impressed with myself. Pat myself there. Pat myself on the back. Okay. I'm pretty sure you're the only one who made that connection, Terry. Oh, so I I, I know for sure I'm the only. One. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm stand alone on that one. Uh. Well, it's it's just like whenever we see uh. What what's his what's his name Xander what's his face the Berkeley yeah Xander Berkeley and anything it's like hey it's oh it's, it's Henry the, it yeah okay let's move on highest war performance of Twister um I'll go first I'm going with Philip Seymour Hoffman because he's just 
because he, he's Philip Seymour Hoffman, and he is every time he's on screen, it's like I want to know what he's gonna do next. Uh, he he's like the one bit of spontaneity in the entire movie. If I'm not going with Philip Seymour Hoffman, my highest war is the Twister itself. I love his right. first scene where he's singing that that song that he's listening to in his trailer. <laughs> That's just awesome. I I watched that scene like five I mistreat times. you, girl. I mistreat you, girl. He's still like singing along with it too. The suck zone. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, Todd, who do you got? Uh, I'm gonna go with, like, a group of people, like, there, there's all these, like, random character actors in this that I feel like own those kind of roles, like, Zach Grenier, yeah. who's, like, the driver for Jonas, like, that is totally a yes. role that he would only be playing, and Joey Slotnick, who, uh, I forget what his character's name is, uh, Joey, like, that's another one of those character actors that, that at that time, like, he was in, like, every movie, and, and uh, th- those guys can't be replaced. I, I, I never knew his name was actually Joey Slotnick. I always just called him 22! Oh, yeah, yeah, there oh, you go. There's another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and, uh, and and Zach Reiner was the was Edward Norton's boss in Fight Club, right? Yeah. That's where I recognize him yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he I mean, was in, like, every movie in the 90s. <laughs> this this cast was in every movie from the 90s. Yes. I mean, or every, and especially every TV show, too. That's a good call. You also had uh, Patrick Fischler in there from, uh, from who's the the guy Mulholland Drive Mulholland Drive who's also one of the main characters in uh in the right stuff which just came out this year check it out if you haven't watched you it also yet, have the, the one really angry guy in the rock is it there he's just like staring at like uh Carrie Elwes, like crashing into the ground like I, I, <laughs> and it's, somewhere Anthony Rapp is in this movie but I really can never yeah, find I saw him. it too I, I never found him I, uh, I yeah. looked for him Deleted two scene, times. <laughs> I watched this twice. And I'm looking for Anthony Rabbit. <laughs> I never saw him. <laughs> All right, Zach, who's your highest war? Uh, yeah, I feel like Terry. That's, I mean, that's like that's the honorary award, uh, but I, it's not really a war performance. I'm more kind of in the Todd category, but I think we got to go with Jamie Gertz here because it was, I think, the hardest to recast her in our recasting. And honestly, I can't really think of anyone in 1996 that could have realistically played her. I, I think like maybe if this movie was in the 80s, I could see maybe Sally Field pulling off a little bit. But like, uh, you know, someone who, who is a wet blanket, but also a sex therapist who is, you know, really angry and upset most of the time, but not upset that her marriage ends. I don't know. It's it's a weird, complex, maybe strangely erotic role. She was nominated for a Razzie for this, <laughs> along with well, there we go. Screenplay for a movie that grossed over a hundred million dollars. Those were the two Razzie awards that it was nominated for. I think that that's a that's a thing. <laughs> Apparently, at the time, it was. <laughs> So Terry, you really don't know Jamie Gertz from the NBA draft. She she's like a part owner of the Atlanta Hawks. She she's always the one that pulls the the lottery number when they when they oh, figure out the draft that order. That sounds okay. like fake news. <laughs> that is real. You don't know that either. And you like Atlanta. You're like an Atlanta person. Look look it up. She's there every year. That's like the that's that's her claim to fame. She's more known for that than any of her movie roles. She was also in the Seinfeld episode. She dates Jerry with the uh, Sparrow Square, and she's also uh, moonlights as a sex phone worker. Okay, I I googled Anthony Rap Twister, and I'm looking through the image results, and I'm not seeing anything. I think it's I think he was that part of in the movie. 
I think he was part of Jonas's crew. There were a bunch of people yeah. uh, in those, um, you know, tint, black tinted Dodge caravans, and we don't always see them perfectly in focus. So I, I would bet he was one of them. So, uh, Gertz's husband is the owner of the hawk. So I guess you could say that, yeah. Not fake news. Gertz represented Sounds like the fake Hawks news, in the but... NBA draft lottery for the 18, 19, and 20 draft. <laughs> She's not there every year. That's not... <laughs> well, okay, it's the last few okay. years. Well, I've never seen her before. Apparently she was in uh, Ch- uh, Jersey Girl, <laughs> which I really don't remember. Everyone's favorite Kevin Smith movie. <laughs> and Lesson Zero. Uh, I've never seen any of her other movies, though, so... All right, worst performance. I mean, uh, I'll go first so I can take the low-hanging fruit of Carrie Elwes. Obviously. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is in, in the, I mean, he tries to even pull off a southern accent here, too. Yeah, but, um, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes he does, and other times he forgets about it. Honestly, looking at him, all I could think of was, you're scared of the claw. You're scared of the claw, because this is liar-liar territory of, of his career. And he was horrible in that movie, too. And I think that was the point of him, just trying to be horrible in that movie. You're, but... you're lucky you haven't seen Saw, because then you would have seen the real awfulness of Carrie Elwes. That, that was a horror movie in more ways than one? <laughs> yes. He didn't even have... If he had a claw, it probably would have been more entertaining. <laughs> but, you know. He was also in a, also in a Seinfeld episode where, where he tried a New York accent, and that worked out How really well. How many cast members of this movie were in Seinfeld at some point? At least two. Those are the only ones I, I could find. All right. Uh, let's see. Todd next. Well, I mean, the easy choice is Bill Paxton because I mean, he's just not an action star and he's bland. But, I mean, I for my gimmick pick, I guess I'll go with Shelley Duvall in The Shining because she appears for like a split second. I'm like, yep, that's the worst performance. <laughs> Like, even the twister was like, get her off the screen. It's like, we're going to take the screen <laughs> apart. <laughs> I waited until this scene to get rid of the driving. Yeah. Uh, all right. Zach, how about you? So my real pick is Bill Paxton for many of the reasons we've already said. You know, he has basically two emotions, anger or fear, and that's it. Um, but my gimmick pick, I'm going to go, I like how, you know, real versus gimmick pick. My gimmick pick is going to be Toby the dog, who's, the, uh, he's not as cute as Toto, and when he looks at the twister outside that kills uh, Helen Hunt's, little Helen Hunt's father, he looks way more excited than he does scared. He's supposed to look frightened, and he's, like, sticking his tongue out, and he looks, you know, like he's ready to play fetch or something. Not very good dog well, acting. he was just like, oh, shit, I get to go into the cellar now? <laughs> like, I've never been down there before. <laughs> The other dog was right, awesome, no. though. He had, like, his tongue hanging out all yeah, the, the way out the side of his mouth. The, <laughs> that dog was awesome. Are you talking about Aunt Meg's yeah. dog? Moe's, named for Dwight Schrute's cousin? Yeah, that, that dog <laughs> actually had some real skills in the movie because he, he survived and was able to get through that house that was falling apart, that, that uh, miniature set house that fall, that crumbles. My other call for worst performance is, uh, is Helen Hunt's dad um, because, I mean... Why in the hell is he trying to hold the door closed? I mean, that was like the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Well, how do they survive once the door comes off? Like, whoa, whoa we're missing like a good five minute. Se- how, do, how does the mom and little Helen Hunt yeah, yeah. stay alive? It's like, oh, yeah, well, like, 
he's gone. And if they were able to stand there and know that, then why didn't he just stand there and know that? (laughs) Exactly. It's like the the side of the aircraft just got taken off, but they're just sitting there in their seats like, wow, that's a really big hole. (laughs) (laughs) But but don't worry, he does come back in in, uh, something very similar to Truman's dad in The Truman Show. He does reappear later in the movie with uh, the surrogate uh, family. So not, not, not to worry. No, like this, you know, they, he, he they, like dro- little... they drive by and she sees their, you know, like uh, their family all, oh, all united yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller Award to the best minor character. Zach, I'll let you go first on this one. Uh, well, I'll start with my gimmick pick, which is going to be the other Bill that uh, Bill kills, apparently, at some point. The other Bill that stripped naked or was half naked and threw the bottle of Jack Bill? Daniels. Um, but. There are a lot. So this is, I think, one of the reasons I chose this movie. There are a lot of great minor characters in this movie to choose from that that you want to know more about. Um, I gotta say, I am pretty intrigued by uh, the Belzer character, played none other than the uh, Academy Award snubbed director Todd Field. Um, you know, he is uh, he's really into the marriage between Joe and Bill. Like, I, he's sort of like a groupie for them a little bit. And then I will have to say that a lot of the time I did confuse him with the rabbit character until I actually watched it this time. You'd think for all the times I've watched the movies, I'd be able to tell Ellen Ruck and Todd Field apart, but um, I really wasn't. They sort of were like one character to me. So maybe I'll give it to both of them. But uh, yeah, Rat- Rabbit is good. Rabbit is pure. Um, although I'll give it to Todd Field. I'm sure you thought it, at that point that five years later he would make your top movie of all time. <laughs> oh, of course. Just like we thought Rusty was going to turn into the greatest actor of his generation. Of course. Dusty. Dusty. No, it's, isn't it Rusty? Dusty. Is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. R- Rusty's the son of Clark Griswold in the uh, yeah. Lampoon's movies. It's also the horse on Seinfeld. But I'll, I'll and stop like the, the really trouble, like trouble kid in uh, Full House. <laughs> That's like the oh God. potential, the, like uh, is he like the cousin son. or something? Well, he's gonna be like he's like a cousin Danny's Rusty. girlfriend's son. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. Wow. And you're wow. and you're making fun of me for for <laughs> making an Apollo thirteen connection. No, right, I, I didn't. I mean, no, I understand that. I too. was the one who made fun of you. <laughs> All right, Todd. What about you? Favorite minor character? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a few. I. I, I mean, I guess I, I could say Scott Thompson as Preacher, just because when I when I would see him, I would th- I, I kept thinking, like, is this Anthony Rapp in a whole bunch of, like, hair? But it's not. <laughs> I know! This yeah. is Copeland from Police Academy. And uh, he's, like, he's like this, like, low-key, like, sort of genius in the group that never gets credit for it. He isn't as showy for it. Uh, he, he, and he's the one who ends up getting the dog from Aunt, uh, Aunt Meg, so... Uh, Preacher is kind of awesome, and uh, I, I kept thinking that, is, that that's that got to be Anthony Rapp, right? It's not. <laughs> that's that's the right pick, Todd. I, I changed my vote to Preacher as well because he I don't know what he does in the group. Like, everyone else has very well-defined roles. He's just kind of there. Like, he's sitting in the background watching the TV broadcast, and he's, like, you know, ranking up the, the, the music that he's, you know, you know, chilling out to. And what does he do? Uh, I don't know. You know, nothing. But he's cool. And his name's Preacher. There's got to be a good story there. You just blew my mind that that was Copeland from Police Academy, man. Well, I mean, you take off all the hair. I mean, he still looks like he did, you know, 15 years earlier. (laughs) 
But yeah. I, I really thought that could have been Anthony Rapp, though, if you put a bunch of, like, beard shit on him. Uh, all right. Well, I for my, for my favorite minor character, I'm going Aunt Meg. Simply because if you are someone who constantly has enough stake in the house to feed an army like that, just at the drop of a dime, I want to know who you are and be your friend. She kind of reminds me of Miles' mother, too, at times. Like, I feel like she could have been like, she was good for you at some point. (laughs) She clearly loves Bill more than she does at that point. (laughs) She may or may not slaughter her own cows. I mean, we don't... (laughs) Yeah, she she was one of my other picks, for sure. Yeah, and she deserves to be on the shortlist for Highest War because her performance in Minority Report is basically the same role as this one. It's the, you know, aged old lady who is the se- the, the, the bearer of all knowledge. And uh, that's basically her role. She was also in Lady Bird, too, right? I think she was uh, Lady Bird's, uh, one of the nuns at Lady Bird's school. That's... I don't know. I watched, this, I watched this with my wife, and she said, oh, that's uh, that's Sookie's grandmother in True Blood. That's all oh, she Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, this movie is like, you got you agree, it's, it's like the number one movie for that. Oh, it's that person from that person. Like, you could do that for every single cast member in this movie. Uh, yep, yeah, much. I mean, I knew her, I mean, I remember her in Five Easy Pieces, and she still looked kind of the same as she does <laughs> in Twister. Stickman. Uh, Zach, you're first. All right, I, I went, well, my first instinct was to go with Donald, who's the patient of Dr. Melissa. Um, but I think he's calling Dr. Melissa because he has sexual problems. I think the word she uses is motility, which I actually paused and did like a 10 minute deep dive what that means. It really started freaking me out what that means. That's a episode, whole other episode uh. for podcast. But um, I'm actually going to go with Eric Clapton as the biggest stick man in this movie because he, he's in one of the music videos that um, is playing inexplicably in the barn burner bus thing. And um, he probably gets it in more than any of these characters do. All right. Todd, what about you? Uh, I mean, I have a real pick and a gimmick pick. Should I go with both of them? Yeah, just do both. Alright, my real pick is Rabbit, because, uh, he, uh, like, he, like, sort of low-key, I, I feel like he might be banging Joe, because, like, when, when she's standing up on Dorothy with Bill, like, he's, he, like, he immediately goes over, and he, like, grabs her, and he, he gets her off the thing, because she was gonna need to step down, I was like, like, yeah, it's really sort of, uh, suggestive, and he's, like, a sort of sarcastic asshole, and... You know, I mean, he said, grab your ankles and stick your butt in the air. I mean, he's getting it in. I mean, he knows how it works. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's getting something in. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but the one that I thought Zach was for sure picking was the guy who is uh, watching uh, The Shining with his girlfriend crying on his on his shoulder. Oh, that's, oh, that's my call. that was my pick. That's a good call. <laughs> Nicely done. That was. I mean, I thought that was where Zach was going, I, and that's never what Terry picks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have written down dude at drive-in. That's all I. Yeah. That's all I wrote he's down. Not but how is he, he's not going to get it in that. He's not going to get it in that night because they're all fleeing from the tornado. Uh, but no, but he he's they fleed he's, and he then knows. they left the like later that night. But maybe and then they, he took. But where did they go, Joaquina? I mean, I'm just, they got to, they, they were in imminent danger. Crazy. He took they're his girl to the drive-in. He knows how this works. <laughs> <laughs> He knows how this works. 
Come on. They just had a near-life experience. They're going to go bang after that. They're not going to go chase another tornado. <laughs> no, there's too many metaphors about chasing tornadoes. I Going off with Todd's theory, I also kind of like the idea of Joey, the photographer, banging Joe secretly because they have like an intimate moment where she tells him to take the grass out of the autofocus, which is always a moment that cracks me up. And she t- rescues him. She saves his life because he's inexplicably cuddled in the front of the truck, even though he's 10 feet away from the barricade where everyone is hiding. Apparently he's stupid enough to miss that somehow. Also someone who doesn't seem to, to really belong there. Yeah, that's true. All right. We can go a whole lot of different ways with this one. The Billy Bats douchebag. Zach? I went with the family at the end of the movie um, who live in the in the, the farm. Um, although I, I do have to say, so originally I, thought, I, I said because their horses aren't tied up and they're sacrificing them essentially. But then my wife said that if they tied up the horses, that would probably be even more abuse toward the animals. And then I said, well, okay, well, they have the knives, you know, and all those sharp objects. And then she said, well, that probably means that, or, and, and you know, that I, they're, they're probably slaughtering cattle, right? And she said, no, they're probably just chopping down plants. So my wife completely, um, you know, took apart my logic for uh, the family at the end, but I'm still going to go with them anyway. All right. All right. All right. Todd? Well, I mean, I, I was going to say Lawrence because, you know, he, yeah, he, he just Lawrence. hides in the truck because he thinks that he's better than uh, go- going oh. into the uh, the shelter right next to him. He's just like a little bitch in there, too. Like, he has a mullet. I mean, there isn't much more douchebag than, you get, than that. I mean, he looks <laughs> like, throughout the movie, he just looks like he has a disdain for the rest of the people there, even though he, like, dedicates his life to that career. He's just... I don't know. He, he's yeah. He's a total douchebag. So I, I I went I went a lot bigger. I went Bill. Bill's my douchebag. Bill's my other choice. Yeah. I mean, I, the first like half hour of this movie, you're watching what Bill Paxton is doing on on the screen as as Bill, and it's like okay, there's one person acting rationally here, and it is obviously not you. And <laughs> in in every conversation he has with Helen Hunt. It's like either either that or Helen Hunt does a horrible job making it like, like I feel like Helen Hunt either needed um, needed to watch Malcolm and Marie. They both need to watch Malcolm and Marie before they did the, those scenes of what it looks like to be a fighting couple because they have no idea what that means. And uh, it just makes Bill look like a douchebag instead. I like that none of us said Jonas because the truth is Jonas isn't really a douche. He he actually is the successful one. He got the corporate sponsorships. Okay, do people understand that like when you're a scientific researcher, you have to get funding somehow? Bill is a loser. Bill stepped away from the project and it got better when Bill left. Okay, it's he's like a coach that left the team and then they got better because Dorothy was developed in his absence. All right, so Jonas is like kind of a baller in this movie, even though he's it's a terrible performance. Did you also notice a little bit of, like, uh, you know, Grey Matters, uh, you know, uh, Walter White, Elliot, oh. and Gretchen d- dynamic between oh. them a little bit? There's a little bit of an origin story there, I think. That's why he went up and punched him right when he first saw him. <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like Jonas is like the, uh, the X-Wing pilots in Star Wars that have to use the computer to try and, to try and make the shot on the Death Star instead of just using the Force. <laughs> That's deep. Or, or, or the other one I thought of is, is like the the uh, the flight controller in Rocket Man. 
I followed procedure. I followed procedure. <laughs> or maybe he's just like the Grumman guy. Yeah, yeah. How about that, Lem? Okay. Uh, what's what's the best scene in this movie, Zach? Oh, shoot, I forgot that category. Uh, best scene. <laughs> Come back to me. I'll think right, of one. All right, Todd, best scene. Uh, I mean, I like when Dustin's trying to, or Dusty or whatever, he's trying to show Melissa the storm because that is just Philip Seymour Hoffa just going for it. Like, I mean, it's like he's rooting for his beloved Sooners in that scene. Like, he's just, he's just like, <laughs> pointing everything out. Like, he obviously has a thing for it, but he is just, like, animated as shit. I I. I that, that is Hoffman going out off, and that, that is a... That, I mean, it doesn't get better than that in any movie. He's fired up. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good pick. Um, Gosh, I, I could... I thought, I thought of mine if go you Go ahead, want. go ahead, because um, I really don't I, have, a, have a good pick at all. <laughs> all right, I think I, I think I would go with the, the scene at Aunt Meg's house for some of the reasons we've already talked about, but, like, I just like how in that scene they're just, like, chilling out. Like these people are fun to be around like don't you kind of want to just hang with them like i almost got there was almost in this movie an almost famous vibe just a little bit in the sense that they're basically groupies they're basically wandering around the midwest on a bus and philip seymour hoffman is in it like these people are fun <laughs> it's got everything you need exactly yeah, this one i thought terry was gonna choose yeah that's it that was one of my choices as well it's it's got it has that that feel of like these guys who have obviously been together for a while, they're, like, telling their old war stories, especially to, like, the people who don't know them already, and they're like, oh, man, yeah, you need to get new material because we've told this story a million times. <laughs> like, I mean, th that scene is totally authentic. That's one of the best scenes for sure. That, that's probably what I'll go with. The only other one I was thinking of is uh, the the one, or thinking about, like, encounters with Twisters they have when they, when they hit the, see the sisters, and it just kind of spins the truck in circles. I mean, I think that's like the the coolest point of their encounters with one of the tornadoes. Yeah, I mean, another thing I love about this movie is that every tornado looks different. Like, I think that's that's like a cool detail from this movie is that they they really took the time to make. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe they look a little fake at times, but each of them look really distinctive. Like when you think about the sidewinders or the twister or or the the sisters, excuse me, or the one at the end, they all look different, and that's like pretty accurate. Like if you look at tornadoes in pictures, they always look different. So cool detail. Isn't Sidewinder, right. wasn't that, like, Bud's name in Kill Bill? Bud's code, Sounds right. code name? Yeah. <laughs> or was he the California King's sake? No, that was that was L. So the other random I reference that I was thinking of right now is after Zach went through everything that makes it, like, almost famous, it made me think of Andy Samberg's impression of Nicolas Cage on SNL. It's got all the great traits of a great Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Um, all right. Flaws, outdated, conspiracy theories. It sounds like we, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the flaws as we've been going along. And uh, conspiracy theories. I've got a couple. It sounds like you guys have some too. Go go for it, man. Okay. Uh, let's see here. So I've somebody, got somebody, baby. I've got I've got a couple conspiracy theories here, and they all kind of revolve around Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um. So so I've got I've got two here. One, I think that um that Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie was uh was he wasn't 
it wasn't Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Dusty. It was actually Sandy Lyle playing Dusty, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Along Came Polly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let it rain. That, that felt like it. Oh, that just I feels see. like a Dusty role. Um, or yeah, it's 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 a Sandy role, and so I think I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was uh was that much of a of a forward thinker that he would go so method to think that he was going to uh, play this character as a character he was going to play eight years in the future. Um, so that I, there was that. Then there was another moment where um, I, I felt like he looked like someone else. And so I'm going to say that Dusty was the inspiration uh, for the other Titanic expert in Titanic that is alongside Bill Paxton with the big beard and everything like, like the idiot looking guy. I think that I think Philip Seymour Hoffman should have played him, and Dusty was the inspiration for him. Yeah, or and he should have been played by Bruce Valanche. Well, that that, that could have been good too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, do you have anything? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just go over all my shit. One of them, uh, <laughs> I feel like. The whole movie was, like, tenant in the way that I could hardly understand what anyone was saying most of the time in the action sequences, because the sound effects are just way too loud in the score, which the score kind of sounded like a mix of, like, Braveheart with, like, The Rock. It was, like, this big epic thing with, like, easily, like, mid-90s action thing, which is really bizarre because this movie doesn't really belong with either of those. And uh, another thing I thought about was, I don't know how they all didn't just damage their eyes. They should have been wearing goggles at some point. Like, she is, like, walking right toward a twister that's, like, 20 feet away from her, and debris is flying at her face the entire time, and she is just, she, she never even has to squint. I'm like, what the hell is going on there? Like, how is, she, how, how is she not just, like, completely destroying her eyesight? I mean, those kind of things are just inexcusable. Uh, it's funny you say that. It's funny you say that because apparently Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton did get eye damage during the filming of this movie. Well, there you go. I mean, and it wasn't even a real twister. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and I mentioned earlier, but I don't know how they they. I mean, they never changed their clothes. They're like soaking wet. They're full of mud. And then the next scene is not ex- like exactly several days later, and it's not warm enough for them to just like dry naturally. But they're just naturally dry after that. Bill I, even takes a shower and then just good, gets back in his old clothes. The same clothes, yeah. And they, they were there for probably like an hour tops. And they yeah they obviously never washed those clothes. I don't know. And I want to know how Melissa's phone was still working when they were like charging at that one storm. Like that that that, that tornado took out every like, uh, you know, uh, post, every power line and everything. There must have been some insane cell reception at that point point <laughs> like i mean and that was like what yeah 1996 like that that was just really impressive or just really stupid and also i want to know how is ever like zach was saying how is everyone paying for these things that they're doing like they waste like four trucks yeah they are have no problem just like destroying equipment <laughs> and uh i mean it looks really expensive like who who's actually paying them <laughs> like they just look like they're doing their own thing but they just have Not an corporate. infinite budget <laughs> I think it's the University of Muskegee or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like, you yeah, see Muskegee that logo State College a few times. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's on that bus outside. Yeah. And on, on, the, on, on Larry's shirt or Lawrence's <laughs> shirt. I didn't know his name was Lawrence until you said that. <clears throat> All right, Zach, do you have anything? Yeah, I do. So um, when, we, when we first see Joe, she's wearing that, like, white 
uh, that white uh, wife beater, and it gives off a real strong Laura Dern and Jurassic Park vibe. I feel like this movie was very much Jurassic and Park inspired, especially because it was written by Michael Crichton. And his um, wife. And his wife, yeah. It's amazing how many people wrote this oh, movie. Oh, so does Laura Dern have a daughter is, but... that we could cast in that lead role, not Kaylee Cuoco? <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> Um, so the, the biggest gripe I had watching this again is this is the biggest series of storms in 10 years, they say, and Bill is a weatherman and he's not in the studio. Like, what is he doing? This is like, you know, I mean, I mean, this is like uh, a tax attorney who decides to take the week off on April 15th. Like, come on. Like, well, what's, what's he doing? Just hanging out. How do Bill and Melissa find the crew at the beginning of the movie? Like, they're just like randomly in the middle of yeah. nowhere. There's no GPS or anything. Um, I have, so the, the truck that falls from the sky um, and nearly kills Melissa, like that was the smallest tornado in the movie. Okay. That was barely an F1. And that thing must've flown the, the truck like 10 miles. And it is the only piece of de- debris that falls out of the sky. That seemed a little bit unrealistic. It fell like backwards uh, too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how could she not see it? Like no one's going to see that falling out of the sky. I don't know. Um, so uh, no one knows what goes on inside of a tornado. It's very mysterious, yet Bill always knows the direction that it's going. So why do they even need Dorothy? Um, and then the end of the movie, my wife actually pointed this out. I'd never noticed this before. Um, the end of the movie is the exact same ending as the ending in Speed. Instead of Keanu and Sandra on the subway, you know, roped onto the bar or whatever, it's just Bill and Joe and, and they're, you know, it's the explosion and all the crew comes. It is literally the exact same ending. I don't know how after 25 years I never noticed that, but um, that's amazing. And then my final thing is I have a lot of questions about Philip Seymour Hoffman's genitals. Like, what was he doing that day on the set that he wasn't wearing underwear? Are, is he getting into character? Does Dusty just not wear anything to work? I mean, this is the biggest day of the year for him. He's just going commando. And then, like, or is Philip Seymour Hoffman just, like, a, that much of a method actor? Like, he's trying to get into the head of the character. But either way, we need more explanation Wait, so here. is he only wearing a shirt? Is that what you're saying? No, he, 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 you know, he, his genitals were exposed. There's, there's nothing going on beneath the equator down there. I know, but so was he not wearing pants? I think they're just loose shorts. Oh. Yeah, very loose shorts with, with nothing, uh, nothing protecting the boys down there. (laughs) I never heard about that. Yeah, I, I read some about that. I was reading through the IMDb trivia. Hmm. All right. Let's wrap this up. LVP MVP. Zach? So I'm going to pull a gimmick a little bit again. I'm going to say my LVP and the MVP are the same person, and that is the one and only Jan de Bont. Because Jan de Bont was a great director. Obviously, this is an incredibly directed movie. It was, a, I think it was the number two movie of 1996. It was one of the highest grossing movies of, of the 90s. And you would think after this and Speed and then later Tomb Raider, like the guy would have a solid career. But he was such a freaking lunatic, okay? According to IMDb, um, there was a stunt that went wrong and um, it wasn't caught on film. And uh, Debont insisted that they shoot it again and it cost them $500,000 and he didn't tell the studio about it. Um, as I was saying earlier, Bill 
Paxton and Helen Hunt got injured on set. The original cameraman, Don Burgess, who did a lot of Michael Bay's movies, quit because he was so frustrated with Jan de Bont's um, direction style. Jan de Bont apparently blamed everybody else when something didn't go right on this movie. This movie apparently was a nightmare to shoot. And so the reason he's an MVP is because he's a great visionary director, but he's an LVP in the sense that he's like, I mean, I don't know what's going on there. He sounds like Tommy Wiseau, and he actually does sound like Tommy Wiseau, but he uh, actually acts like him too. And um, I think it takes some spectacular cojones to um, ruin your career after making, you know, a movie that grosses $500 million because you have that bad of a reputation. So I, I think that's commendable and, and pretty impressive. Apparently it takes Phil Hoffman's cojones, so. That's true. Nicely done. <laughs> that's the MVP of the movie. It's Phil, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's cojones. Yeah, I was shocked to see that Jan de Bont only directed five movies in his career. I mean, and... Because and he was a maniac. Yeah. He, Reckless. He did, he did Speed, Speed 2, Twister, The Haunting, and Tomb Raider, The Cradle, Cradle of Life. And that was it. That's all I ever directed. So he was like, if Michael Cimino would have been in the 90s... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the comparison. Exactly. But it wasn't always over budget stuff. I think he was just a he dick. He just hid $500,000. he's the biggest <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> no, no, we, we don't need to tell the studio about it. Let's just shoot. Let's shoot again. He don't does, don't tell he them. He does have 64 cinematography credits, though. Including Die Hard. Yeah. All right. Uh, Todd, you're next. Uh, my LVP is Fat Bastard for naming this his favorite Helen Hunt movie. And... <laughs> My MVP is the stunt team, because I've never given it to a stunt team before, but I have no idea how they shot this. Like, there are scenes where they are going, like, super fast, and they are, like, like, uh, NASCAR quarters, like, going, and then, like, one randomly turns, and they don't crash into each other. Every time, I'm just like, how the hell are they not hitting each other? They deserve it. The stunt team in this is pretty incredible. That's a good call. That's a good call. Yep. All right, well, my my LVP is... uh... It, it's kind of a twofer. It, it's the house that lived at the end. And uh, along with the uh, the scout coordinator, because apparently um, this was, they were supposed to destroy that house. And then, um, and then like the, the historical society of the town said, no, you're not destroying the house. And so they just said, screw it. We'll just film it here and let the house live. And that's, that just is a stupid way of running business. <laughs> And my, my MVP is pipes. Just, yeah. Just pipes. Yeah. Or Pepsi. I mean, Pepsi really saves the day in this movie. It's true. It's true. I mean, for something that about corporate America, to have Pepsi as your uh, such a obvious sponsor is pretty pretty funny. And, and, and Dodge and Warner Brothers, too. Nice product placement throughout. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this up. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. I'm going to go first. Um, and uh, this is actually, it's kind of funny that this is my quote of the day because uh, it, it kind of was referenced a little bit earlier. So um, I, I watched, uh, so I watched Malcolm and Marie this morning and I mentioned already, I see, I saw some parallels between the relationship between Bill and Joe and the relationship of Malcolm and Marie. And then I was listening to some music earlier today, and uh, and I decided to uh, to quote a great poet of our time, and that poet is none other than Britney Spears, um, in a song that she had, and the 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 chorus of that song is, 
You drive me crazy. I just can't sleep. I'm so excited. I'm in too deep. Whoa, oh, oh, crazy. But it feels all right. Baby, thinking of you keeps me up all night. So. Once I, yeah. I, I, I was listening to a 90s radio station, and once that popped up, I was like, that's Malcolm and Marie. I think that's that Bill might and be Joe. The they drive each other crazy. We have quoted Britney Spears on our quote of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Every time that Spring Breakers comes up. <laughs> yeah, Alien would like that quote. Yeah, yeah. I'd appreciate it. All right, uh, Todd, you're next. Uh, mine comes from uh, Arthur Christopher Orm Plummer CC, who died just yesterday at the age of 91. In December, Christopher Plummer said, A lot of people want to retire. I couldn't. You don't retire in our business. What, play golf and watch television? Oh, please. We go until we drop. Acting, learning those lines, helps keep the brain alive. I would rather die right now on stage doing my craft. And he had three movies in the last two years, and he had one that was in the middle of filming. So, respect, Christopher Plummer. Well done. Well done. All right, Zach, finish this off. So we've ar- we've already talked about some of the great dialogue from this movie. You know, I I always thought you tri- uh, chase tornadoes deep down. I thought it was a metaphor. I already mentioned that line. Um, he's in it for the money, not the science. I think again has a certain poetry that is just inimitable. I mean, you could take a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and could you couldn't come up with dialogue like that. But um, based a little bit on what we've been talking about, uh, I think I gotta go gotta go with the line from Melissa. She didn't marry your penis. Okay, she didn't only marry your penis. In honor of what we've been talking about with Philip Seymour Hoffman's um, exposure, um, that line entertained eight-year-old Zach Saltz and his friends quite a bit every time we watched this movie. That was a solid line for like three years, a solid laughter that would emote every time that part of the movie would come on, and uh, it, it was a classic. And, and you really should have ended with Todd, not I should have, I should have. I, yeah. I always do this part wrong. <laughs> I always do the, the reviews right, but I always do this part wrong. Anyways, oh well. Well, with that, we're, we'll uh, draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back at you soon with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.